as well as there'll be very likely coarse language, especially from me. Um, there also might be a trigger warning for one of the reviews particularly, because there's going to be a discussion of a movie that involves, a couple of movies that actually involve rape, but one that's very explicit. Um, and the whole episode is adult content. It's about films made for adults. So, uh, as usual, uh, you know, for adults only, you know. Your discretion may be advised for this particular episode. Uh, or listener discretion may be more accurately may be advised. Mr. Jason DeBray is joining me yet again. Always a pleasure to have him on Rank and Review. And yeah, let's get into the business. Because there is business to get into. Send your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. You can check out the site at rankandreview.ca. And please tell that other movie nerd in your life about Rank and Review. Now let's listen to this show. It's another fun-filled edition of Rank and Review with regular contributor Mr. Jason Dubray of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. Fill your ears with the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, Jason Dubray. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that I'm still on your uh, Rolodex for this this show. I I love um, I just love talking movies with you. And I've said that before on my show and on yours. It's, uh, well, and I appreciate that, and I'm going to be leaning on you more and more, I feel like, as time goes on, to do that exact thing. But what's unusual about this episode, I think, is that we're going to talk about grown-up movies. Yes, we are. In quotation marks, <laughs> adult movies. And one of the hilarious things about this idea is, like, what a huge canopy adult movies really would cover. Yeah. That it would cover a movie like Midnight Cowboy and a movie like I Spit on Your Grave 2010. I mean... What we're talking about here is films that are made to be viewed by adults. Not mm-hmm. necessarily an R-rated film, but a movie made by and for grown-ups. Now, how did your boys like it? <laughs> <laughs> My boys didn't watch any of these ones with me. They're lame. Oh, I um, can't believe it. I have been watching and do uh, 
old reviews on, on YouTube and uh, particularly the old Siskel and Ebert show. And it's funny because this keeps coming up on some of those shows. This is from like the late 80s, some of these shows coming up. They keep bringing up the rating system and how broken it is. How there's movies that are rated NC-17 that shouldn't be and there are movies that are rated R that should be rated NC-17 and that there should be a distinction between an X rating, which is basically pornography, and an R rating, which is adult content. I guess to start our discussion of grown-up adult movies, I would start there. Because for me, it isn't at least exclusively about titillation or the sexual angle about it. It's about it being for grown-ups. Uh, I learned that renting movies at the library when I was a kid. They had little stop signs on the back of all the VHSs right. that That's you right. weren't allowed to rent. Mm -hmm. But I knew who worked where, and like some places where I could get away with it, some places I wouldn't. And I would just make a point of renting the ones with a stop sign, just because, like, <laughs> Me too. that's that's who I was, right? But the stop sign didn't always mean brutal violence. It didn't always mean sexuality. It usually did mean some combination of both of those things. Sometimes they were just not for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Where do you land on this? Yeah, I, I think... I don't know how it evolved, but sometime in the 90s, I went from being... Uh, a, a boy who, if I saw the R rating, I am automatically thought it was a horror movie. Yeah. And horror movies were bad because they were going to give me nightmares or whatever because I was very sensitive. An episode of Unsolved Mysteries, I would lose sleep for a week over. Right. So, um, and and then I started to discover that, okay, I, JFK still to this day, my, my favorite movie, that's an R rated movie. That's not a horror movie. That's not a... Yeah. Anything. And so then I started going, actually, some of the best movies are rated R. And that led me down this path of trying to push that a little bit more and more. When we get to uh, 1997 and I'm in university and, you know, a movie called Boogie Nights is coming out. Yeah. Um, I'm less concerned about seeing something that is going to be edgy. In fact, I'm welcoming it. And maybe sometimes, in some cases, giving a little bit more credit to that, which I still think in its way is an immature attitude. Because <laughs> just because it's uh, an adult movie doesn't mean it's a good movie. All right. Well, and that's the weird distinction that people seem to somehow miss. Like, maybe I'm making it up, but here's Boogie Nights as a prime example. This is a movie that is about pornography, mm -hmm. but that is not itself pornography. No, I think that so people went to it thinking it was pornography. <laughs> Starring Burt Reynolds and Julian Moore? I, I, I really doubt that, you guys, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. But um, I think that there's something about a movie that's like accepting what it is. I talk about that on the show all the time, even mm -hmm. if you're a dumb, cheap monster movie. Just know that you're a dumb, cheap monster movie, and I am on your side. Um, they're, they're talking to a grown-up audience, and a lot of things will go over the head of, like, a kid who rents it from the library. A prime example of this for me would be the movie Straw Dogs from Sam Peckinpah. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. Uh, that's an adult movie. It is. Not because of the violence and not because of the sex, but because you need to be an adult to process that movie. <laughs> like, as a child, it was impenetrable and disturbing, right? Yeah. And so I started to fear the stop sign, not necessarily because it was going to traumatize me or be scary, but because... Maybe it meant it was legitimately not for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Imagine that. Something isn't for kids. Well, and this is a guy like we had Super Channel when I first moved to Saskatchewan. And we would get this magazine every month telling us what was going to be on. And I would go through it. 
and like flagged the movie. So like it had the little red note on it, like this is a hard R. Extreme violence, coarse language nudity, all boxes are checked. Yep. I will check that movie out yep. Yep. based on that criteria. And again, this is me when I'm like 12 to 15, whatever, like living at home and this is what I have access to. We didn't have the internet the way people mm -hmm. understand it today, mm -hmm. you know. So it was my peak to the forbidden. But all of these movies aren't about being forbidden. Sometimes they're taking an adult subject and they're talking about it. I think mm -hmm. The Center of the World is a good example of this. It's definitely about adults being adult and having their naked time together. But it's also a conversation about mm -hmm. all the stakes that that relationship creates and the power dynamics and everything within it. And if you're 14 and you're watching it because there might be boobs in it, that's not, not, not the reason register. to see this one. It's not going to register for no. you. No. So I believe that there can be adult movies, but there is the other side of it that Siskel represents in my Siskel and Ebert discussion, where he has no problems with like adult erotica films like um, Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a mm -hmm. whole series of these Emmanuel, which yeah. like softcore pornography that would play in a movie theater. I can't imagine going to a movie theater to watch something like that. It just seems like a solitary type of thing <laughs> to me. I don't know it if I'm It's a different time, that. for sure. Um, but, like, he would make excuses for that, you know? Like, there needs to be something for adult audiences yeah. so that they can have that wing. Like, sexuality, as uncomfortable a topic as it can be, is sort of a big part of the human experience. And to leave it off of the screens because we're uncomfortable with it, well, it's farce. We don't. We, we, we love to see sex on the screen, but it's loaded. Mm -hmm. We need to either have a message behind it or it needs to be mm -hmm. one of these movies that's just embracing its exploitation. This is all of the stuff that I'm talking about when I mean adult. It's very different than when I, we did an episode once upon a time, <laughs> breast episode ever. Oh, yeah, I remember Which that is yeah. purely dealing in exploitation. Yep. That's the line that I want to draw here. Not that there isn't movies that indulge in exploitation here, but that uh, not all of these movies are purely exploitation films. They're adult films. Yeah. That, that makes sense. It's interesting, the evolution, though. I mean, and I, I'm i starting to sound like a grumpy old man, I think, on my podcast. Uh, and I keep going over, and I keep mentioning the licorice pizza example, that the movies that come out now are mostly superhero movies designed for kids. And you have a movie for adults. It's like licorice pizza isn't, you know, boogie nights in, in content or anything. But it's an intelligent comedy about friendship that is for a more mature audience. For my money, P.T. Anderson's best movie, by the way. Uh, yeah, and I'm I'm up there with you. I I, I haven't taken the time to rank all of his yeah. uh, movies and, and put it in perspective. I want to give it a little bit of time before I do that. But one of my absolute favorite movies of 2021. I get very frustrated with the fact that I saw it in Calgary. But it, in the city of Saskatoon, it showed up months later. And it showed up with two screenings, one at 3.30 in the afternoon. Thank you. <laughs> when, you know, a lot of adults are going to be still at work. And the other one was, I think, about 10 o'clock, 9.30, 10 o'clock. Where, again, some of those, the target audience, they have to work the next day. So they're not necessarily always able to maybe on a weekend or something then they'll get the number saying oh single digit screenings it's not a movie that 
uh, people are interested in seeing. So let's get rid of it. And then you hope for it to appear on streaming services or yeah. Blu-ray. And it's a great movie. Like we, when the multiplexes first came out, this is the same rant I did actually on my show yesterday, but when multiplexes first came out, I thought this is great. Okay, so we'll have the popcorn movies. They'll have the, a couple screens there, but there'll be room for movies for adults. No, yep. half of the theater is, and I have nothing against Spider-Man, yep. but half of the theater is Spider-Man or the Batman, and there isn't room for, for movies like Belfast or Licorice Pizza or even like Nightmare Alley, which is a fantastic film in, in my biased opinion that was a box office failure. Yeah. I, I see over here... Last night in Soho. Yeah, that was a box office failure. Yeah, brilliant movie. I you know, well, and I think so. What, what garners success and failure for a film is starting to change. Like it uh, is the fact that Last Night in Soho didn't make a lot of money in the box office has nothing to do with the quality. No, of the film. it doesn't. And I don't think anybody who takes films seriously like no. believes that. And no. uh, I think that in a lot of ways. I, I took my kids to Spider-Man. I enjoyed Spider-Man. I haven't seen the new Batman movie, but I'm sure sooner or later it will mm -hmm. happen. There will always be another Batman or Spider-Man movie down the pikes. But have they taken There's the movie theater? There's not going to be another Last Night in Soho. Or no, another, there won't. Uh, the French Dispatch from from uh, yeah. uh, Wes Anderson kind of took a dump in the box office this year. But mm -hmm. does anybody seriously think that movie sucks? Uh, that'll be a conversation for another okay. day but, well, but, anyway. but but I think it's a movie that uh, have they taken movies for adults or they don't want adults going to the movie theater anymore because that's the impression I'm getting because the movies that I, I want to see the, the popcorn stuff don't get me wrong I'm a film fan of every genre but I also want to be able to see movies that were designed for people my age or maybe people a little bit older and that's what in the, the movie theater. Are and for, it's right? just streaming services. Yeah. And that's fine sometimes, but there's other times where I want to go to the big screen. The mentality is is that the your kids are the ones that have the uh, income, disposable income. They'll go to a movie several times. They're your bread and butter for the box office. Yes. So they're they're making the easy bet. Batman, even though they spent, what, $200 million on it, was a safe bet, right? Mm -hmm. People mm -hmm. were going to yeah. show up for Batman. Yeah. You don't know that they're going to show up for licorice pizza. But the problem I have is that you're not really giving them the opportunity. There's no chance. You've taken the choice out of our hands. Give it four or five screenings a day and see what happens. We sort of peeled a little bit away from Sorry. the adult. That's yeah. okay. We, but uh, I just wanted to bring up one more thing uh, because it's another thing I'm talking about, adult movies. I don't necessarily mean adult content. And it brings up the late, great William Hurt. Yes. A movie that's been largely on my mind. Actually, strangely, before I knew that William Hurt passed away, it just I, I recently got my hands to it, and I've loved it since I saw it in theaters. It's called Smoke yeah. from Wayne Wang. That's a and great film. Oh. It is a fucking fantastic movie that I don't think most kids would appreciate. I think in its own way, even though it doesn't have these hard edges that, that you would expect from an adult comedy or whatever, adult movie, it's an adult film. Mm -hmm. You need to have the patience, you need to sort of sit with the movie, enjoy the smoke with them, and enjoy the stories that they're telling, and just savor the flavor. Mm -hmm. And you need to be an adult in a lot of ways, mentally, yeah. to do that. So, again, I, in this belabored introduction... We're not talking about pornography or excessive violence for the mm -hmm. sake of excessive violence, with the exception of maybe one of the films that we'll be talking mm -hmm. about. But generally speaking, 
when I mean adult. That's not what I'm talking about. Is there anything you want to say before we start the reviews? No, I, I'm glad we're talking about this, and yeah. uh, no. I'm excited to get into the reviews. Well, let's let's list them off here. The uh, six adult content films that we're going to talk about. We have Midnight Cowboy, X-rated Best Picture winning. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, 69 I want to say let's say 69 if I'm wrong 69 it's right on the front there we have the remake of I Spit on Your Grave so grateful to be talking about this today because having already reviewed the original Uh I will never have to talk about I Spit on Your Fucking Grave again that's going to be amazing (laughs) Um, from Steven Soderbergh who I'm a big fan of we're going to talk about the girlfriend experience that stars a legitimate porn star, uh, Sash, what's her Sasha name? Gray. Sasha Gray. Uh, the Center of the World from the director of Smoke, but it could not be a more different movie than Smoke. <laughs> um, then we have uh, Consenting Adults from the sort of late 80s, early 90s cycle of... Yeah, 93, I believe. Yeah, but there's all these... Or sorry, films. 92, 92, yeah. There's all these films, and I think that Fatal Attraction probably started the ball rolling in 87 mm-hmm. or 88 about infidelity that were highly sexualized and this came out right in the middle of this and has largely been forgotten and we'll discuss whether or not it should have been Uh and then we're going to close it out with boogie nights paul thomas anderson's dissection of the porn industry Uh thank you for being here brother i'm joe buck from texas and Rico Rizzo from the Bronx. And I'm gonna buy you a drink. What the hell do you think of that? Well, I don't mind if I do. Why do you think I come all the way up here from Texas for? Well, I'm a hustler. You didn't know that? You were gonna ask me for money? Huh? Well, you get out of here! <laughs> you gotta get yourself some kind of management. Only the echo. Hey, I'm walking here! I'm walking here! Don't worry about that. Actually, that ain't a bad way to pick up insurance, you know. New York, no rich lady with any class at all buys that cowboy crap anymore. Women like me, goddammit. The only one thing I've ever been good for is loving. But for that service, I charge 20 bucks. I happen to be his manager. Okay. I'll buy his coffee, huh, please? <coughs> I don't think I can walk anymore. You know what they do to you when, when they know you can't. When they find out that you can't walk. Walk. I'll just tell him. I don't go nowhere without my buddy here. You know what you gotta do, cowboy. I'm scared. So when it comes to Midnight Cowboy, you've been pretty open about it. I believe you said you love this freaking movie is what you told me the other day on the phone. Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna start out saying some things that's gonna make you furrow your brow a little bit, but generally speaking, I agree with you. But I want to talk a little bit about 1960s cinema and something that I picked up on particularly this viewing of Midnight Cowboy. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not going to sit here and say, don't watch Midnight Cowboy, it's overrated, because that would just be a fucking lie, right? That's just a lie. (laughs) A lot of classic 60s movies, even ones that I like, will have this thing to them. Um, Alice's Restaurant, a very famous movie of the 60s. Of course, The Graduate, also Mm -hmm. involving Dustin Hoffman, will employ this. They'll have a song that they like. And they will play the shit out of it. Yeah. And we will watch the characters walk around and we'll see that behavior. And we will hear that song probably in its entirety through a couple, two or three times in the movie. 
Now, this was all part of the sort of 60s icon or, or sort of edgy, you know, hip, you know, drugify, hippify movies, make them more experimental. And mm-hmm. I get that it was sort of of its time. I've also been watching a lot of 60s movies preparing for my 60s horror movies list. Mm-hmm. And there is something about that style, particularly in The Graduate, Alice's Restaurant, and this one, Midnight Cowboy, that so announces the movie to be of the 60s mm-hmm. and of its time and place that in a weird way it seems kind of trapped there which isn't to say that there's no value to watching it today i think that it's a dated movie in a lot of ways um wow. does that take away from its like <laughs> power or you know what a dour experience it is the plot is in case you haven't heard <laughs> john voigt who i think must have been born to play this role. Yeah, he's per- uh, uh, all perfect. Plays an impossibly naive cowboy <laughs> who comes to New York who figures he's going to make his living as an escort and it's going to be amazing. Yeah. And he meets Dustin Hoffman, a uh, inf- very famous performance, and he at this time is trying to sort of shake up what people know he can do. It's 69. We don't know who Dustin Hoffman fully is and what he's capable of yet. Yeah. This is him trying to show us to it. And even he, upon first meeting the John Voight character, takes advantage of it. Oh. Because you can't help it. <laughs> but it's interesting. Like Usually when we see someone coming to the big city and possibly naive and getting destroyed by the world, it tends to be a female character, typically. Mm-hmm. And I honestly think, I mean, it's a drama and it's a fairly bleak portrait of, you know... The, the expectation of a dream and the reality of pursuing it. Um, I think mainly it's a bromance. Mm-hmm. And I think that more than the X rating, more than the best picture, more than even the performances might be the thing that's given the movie its legs. Yes, you're going to be watching a movie from the 60s. Yes, it's going to take its time. It's going to bounce around. A lot of the movies we watched this this episode, I've noticed, have bounced around yeah. with the narrative. Mm-hmm. But if you're not familiar with that style, I think you might be just sort of lost and impressed by it. And if you are, maybe you'll get some nostalgic kick out of it. Um, there are a few things, maybe, that I would argue I would change if it was made today. But I have to look at it at the time it was made. There's a scene where, and I will hand this over to you, I apologize. There's a scene where he's uh, with this woman and he's having issues performing. And uh, she challenges his heterosexuality. And this is what sort of knocks him back into it. It He has to prove himself. Because he has made some personal compromises in the interests of, of survival that uh, he never dreamed he would make. And... Uh, uh, that wing of the movie is probably what earned it. It's X rating, the homosexual content and the sort mm-hmm. of, uh, cause I don't find it that explicit a movie, especially watching it today. But I do think some of its ideas of, of, and its treatments of homosexuality is a little bit dated and that, like I say, Voight was born to play this character. Because I don't know who, what other actor could play that character and we'd still have access to them. The wrong actor, I would just say, this guy is so stupid. He's <laughs> so yeah. unaware of the, the world that it's almost hard to pity him. Yeah. But even though most of the characters in the movie are bad, 
I feel bad for everybody in the movie. I feel bad for, you know, his clients. I feel bad for Bob Balaban. Poor Bob Balaban. <laughs> I'd, I'd forgotten that it was him. Yeah. As that young uh, man. This, this young man who uh, he has a sexual encounter with at a, a movie theater and doesn't get paid for. Uh -huh. But I feel basically bad for everybody in the movie. And that's a very deliberate thing. Yeah. And as a result, the movie is not a feel-good number. But it is an incredibly memorable one. So, I didn't mean to talk shit about your movie. I was just basically saying, I think if you're watching it with fresh eyes in 2022, you should realize, <laughs> yeah, a movie that's almost 50-some years old, like, there's going to be a little bit of a fence decline, even if it is an unmitigated classic, which it is. Yeah. Well, I'm addressing the homophobia yeah. pieces in there. I mean, it was, you know, just a little bit under 30 years later that Boogie Nights has some of stuff in there that is it deals with it in a different way yeah. but there is a certain amount of a bit of a a bit of a judgment i guess yeah. still in there in the 90s where they think things would have progressed quite a bit more so i, I just saw that kind of throughout and that's one of the things that i think kind of sticks out with a lot of movies now that are that are older um yeah, it is so, so 60s. And part of me likes that, I guess. Um, but it's it's the turn where we're getting prepared for the 1970s. And the 1970s are going to be fantastic. We started off with Disney Fair and a lot of musicals. Tons of musicals won Best Picture in that decade. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this, you know, the French New Wave kind of was leading into this American new wave movement that happened late on and Hoffman and and the Pacinos and the Hackmans and Warren Beatty's helped kind of lead us into that thing, Probably which was changing for the better which but it was happening slowly which yeah. would lead into uh, I guess I would argue I know there's some losers in the 70s I mean it's not it wasn't all great as much every as I, decade, I used to yeah. think they they were every weekend there was a, just a classic but uh, I've looked at, at some pretty bad ones from the 70s as well but I do think on the whole, the 70s is potentially the best decade for film um, because they started to shed the um, uh, the restraints that they were under in American cinema and started to push the envelope more. It's interesting that the use of that X rating, the other Best Picture nominee to have an X rating was A Clockwork Orange. Okay. And the X rating did not necessarily mean pornographic at that time. They had G... They had PG. They didn't have that PG-13 thing. No. They had R. And then they, if anything was kind of beyond R, they weren't quite sure what to do with it. Yet it had a story uh, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't... It didn't necessarily mean that you were, it was a pornography, no. but it was lumped under the it was, same... It was for adults yeah. only. It was lumped under the same sort of scale that, that pornography would be. And mm -hmm. there was lots of things that you couldn't advertise... And there were lots of theaters that wouldn't play it. And there's lots of, like, it would limit you financially. Not yeah. just your audience, but, like, your ability to getting a movie out to an audience. But somehow in the counterculture of the late 60s, early 70s, some of these movies got through. I don't know if it was through critics or, or what to become, yeah. you know, classics. Well, you have to experiment in order to get to the next step. And, and in a lot of ways, that's where the late 60s especially was for me. Mm -hmm. They were feeling things out and trying things out. And that experimental, edgy, quote-unquote, real filmmaking 
once they focus on it and put it into stories, particularly the crime movies of the 70s. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it really worked out for them. I just think that they hadn't quite closed the deal on it yet, but they were on their way, and you mm-hmm. can see that watching this movie. Yeah. I wanted to talk about Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Because um, he obviously gained a lot of notoriety from The Graduate. Yes. Well, the, other, well, the other huge movie of the 60s that he was a part of. And the thing about this character is it's about as far away from his character in The Graduate as you could possibly It looks like get. he's aged 20 years between performances, yeah. It's a big performance, and this is very Dustin Hoffman. Like, he doesn't usually use half measures. But for me, he's a sickly person, like, and we sort of see him deteriorating throughout the movie. But for me, it's not the flashy stuff. It's not the, I'm walking here. It's the, it's the moments where he is genuinely candid with Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. cowboy with our main character when we see how terrified he is he knows that he's not going to get better he knows that none of his schemes or none of his things are going to pay out he knows that uh every day is getting closer to a miserable end and this friend who he loves and he values but is too naive to really accept or believe any of that sort of his gesture of friendship is sparing him that reality for as long as he possibly can. So what I'm trying to say is for all the flash and bang of that Mm -hmm. performance, it's actually a pretty subtle thing that's happening there. And to me, it's this, it's not the scene spoilers on the bus where we lose. No, no, no. It's the scene where he admits how scared he is. The, the line reading, I'm glad you mentioned this. It's probably one of the best line reads I've ever heard of. He does this extra thing with the word scared. I'm scared. Like, he, there's this hesitation in the middle. Yeah. Scared. And his, his voice is kind of breaking a bit. Like, saying it out loud makes yeah. it real. Yeah. Yeah. And then your heart goes out to him. Even I mean, though he's kind of a scumbag. He's a, he is a scumbag. Yeah. And both of these guys in different ways are. Yeah. But somehow, in cruel late 1960s New York City, these guys found each other. And they, they needed each other. I mean, another sad thing about it is, you know, where does John Voight go from here? Nowhere good. Yeah, at, at the end of this, like he's, yeah, they're they're in the sun. But he was in the sun at the beginning of the film. Those bus, by the way, like brilliant screenwriting because we have these bus trips and elongated bus trips. You would never have something that would last that long. It takes in its a time. movie That's now. Another sixties yeah, thing that it I know. really takes its time. Yeah, but. Um, like we feel like we're really on the bus going from uh, wherever it was in Texas to uh, to New York, but then there's a bus sequence and a lot and again several scenes and sequences in there at the end to bookend the picture. And he, in some ways, he he's gone through this journey. I I don't know how much he has learned. Hmm. He's but, in the same place he was before, but yeah. he doesn't have a friend. Yeah. So to me, he's in a much worse place. Well, he didn't have a friend at the beginning. He, <laughs> but but he's, he's, he had blind ambition, or yeah. he, he thought he was really daringly original. That uh, in a way, when he arrives in New York, he thinks like that he is Rizzo, that he does have everything figured out, and that his plans are gonna, you know, a guaranteed path to fame and fortune. Uh, John Voight, man, I, I, I don't know how I feel. Like I said, I've said this the third time. Like he was perfect casting for this yes and there's been a handful of times where i've seen john voight in a movie where i like i'm surprised by him where like he pops out more than usual 
Um, weirdly, Anaconda is one of those. Yes, like, that's right. He really, really goes over the top. There's, I want to say, Coppola movie, a civil action. He's, uh, he was in The Rainmaker. The Rainmaker, not yeah. a civil action. Sorry, I get yeah. through those lawyer movies kind of blended yeah. together in my head. But he plays a, a, a really hateable attorney in that movie. And in that movie, he really stands out to me. Mm-hmm. But most of the time that I see John Voight, I'm like, that's John Voight. And mm-hmm. he's delivering the lines. And he doesn't suck, but he's not amazing. Yeah. He's amazing in Midnight he is. Cowboy. He is. <laughs> he's he is. I, I, I am torn. I don't know how I feel about him as an actor, but I will not say anything bad about his performance in Midnight yeah. Cowboy. But that's where I would. That's you. You always test to see how mad I would get. Yeah. That's where I would get mad is if you're saying something bad about these two. No, no. But uh, again, part of me wonders: is it like, is he that brilliant of an actor, or was he just like that face and that oh gosh look just perfect? If it was great casting or something. Even uh, what's that famous Vietnam movie uh, about people recovering from Vietnam? Coming home. Yeah, coming home. He won and. I remember no Oscar that for that from the library, and it yeah. had the stop sign on it. And I think, like, I was probably too young for it. Mm-hmm. But I don't have large memories or feelings about that movie, left or right, either way. I need to revisit it. But yeah. that's another one that he's really known for, that Champ movie from the mm-hmm. 70s, which I know I've watched, but I have no memory of. Have you watched Run- Runaway Train? Oh, yeah. That's a great movie. Yeah. And he is something and else. Or not. That Completely movie. different person. Though. I guess he's inconsistent. Like, can we agree? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. But he shows up in these Jerry Bruckheimer movies as kind of a character, side character. And it's look, like, if I could have one familiar role in a Jerry Bruckheimer movie, fucking like, whatever. Like, let's do it. But Depends on who's behind the camera. I, one thing I want to say, we were talking about the Academy Awards before this and the year that you stopped kind of watching or taking it seriously. Uh, uh, there was a woman who uh, worked in my dad's office and on campus and so I'd, I'd go and like visit with them every once in a while and one year I was talking about the Oscars and she said she said I haven't watched the Oscars since 1969 when um John Wayne beat for true John, grit for true grit beat John Voight and Dustin Hoffman for Midnight Cowboy because that is insane this is the problem if you have two amazing split the vote. Yeah, yeah. Two two amazing performances in the same movie. Mm-hmm. If they have to fight for the award, neither of them are going to win. No. Uh, and I think it was a cumulative award for John Wayne. Not to say that he sucked in True Grit. He acted in True Grit, which is more than he did in a lot of his movies. I guess. So. <laughs> but but I, I understand. Shots fired. I, I, I under- Shots fired at John Wayne. <laughs> yeah, but I understand that sentiment. I think if I'd been alive at that time, I, I would have been unhappy about it too. That, I mean, the, a tie with those two gentlemen because their performances complemented each other so well. Yeah. Um, and well, that's yeah. one of the things about the Oscars. It's the he's due award, right? Yeah. Sylvia Miles also uh, she was up for best supporting actress. She plays uh, the the woman who picks up John Voight and is in that that scene you're talking about where her, it questions his masculinity. Yeah. Um, she gets him. She gets what he is. She has a really, really strong monologue in there. That's one I was, I've was i just ne- never been able to pay that much attention to. And this time, I paid a lot of attention because I, I knew that it wasn't just those two that got acting Oscar nominations that year. And what was it about that performance? And I, I think it, it's way more subtle than the other two. But it's uh, it's it's quite a, quite a good work yeah. from her. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, she didn't plot for me again. It'd been a long time since I've seen it. I was sort of more into the the bromantic angle. Yeah. I do think that's one part of the movie's secret. I felt the same way about uh, Shawshank Redemption. Over and above the fact that it's a great story with a great twist and a prison thing, I think the thing that people connect to is that relationship between the two lead characters. I think we might need more movies about male friendships. Yes, I think that would be a good one. Anyway. You uh, write it, I'll be... I'll, I'll do, yeah. We'll get it going. Even though I've auditioned for you and you know what that's like. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to say about Midnight No, I, it's I one mean, of my... I could go on. Yeah, but. it's one of my favorite movies of the 60s, so you're you're right. I Maybe I have a inflated idea about it. I, I, I think if I do show it to modern audiences, they will be distracted by the 60s style. Or you're, might, you're right, they might embrace it and go, wow... That I mean, the, when they go to that party, that whole psychedelic sequence and Andy Warhol sequence, yeah. you know the Andy Warhol sequence, and uh, but Voight was very good too when he he thinks he's smoking a cigarette and he's when smoking a joint yeah. and he gets super high. Yeah, uh, that that was so well done. But, yeah, but it was it was that that sequence most of all screamed sixties to me. Yeah. I just think that, uh, again, watch the movie, just know what you're getting into. That's mm-hmm. that's all I'm saying. Okay. Uh, and it's an X-rated movie that won Best Picture, yeah. so I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Hello? What's a pretty little thing like you doing out here? So we go now from a great movie that was rated X that probably should have been rated R to an awful movie that was rated R that probably should have been rated X. Sorry if I were jumping the gun into this one, but I don't understand I Spit on Your Grave. Like, the whole the whole sphere of it. Like, I read a book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, sort of a feminist perspective on horror movies and they spent a lot of time on I Spit on Your Grave to the point where I thought like I need to revisit this because I must have missed something and I revisited I reviewed it with my friend Scott Mm -hmm. who you know very well and we both as hardcore veterans of horror movies and who can watch a movie that has some pretty extreme content fucking hated it we're here to talk about the 2010 remake it is written and directed by Mir Zarchi, Zarchi, Z-A-R-C-H-I. Um, I guess if you're going to make this movie, you have to be a believer in the product. You have to think on some level that the first movie had something to say. And if a movie's going to be remade, what's the point? The classic question about any remake, even this one, what are you going to do? And it seems to me that this guy's approach to I Spit on Your Grave was... That movie pissed off censors, that movie pissed off critics, and that movie really pushed the edge of what we could see on screen. How can we make it worse? How can we raise the bar of the content? Mm-hmm. How can we, you know, over and above seeing this naked woman sodomized over a boulder by the side of a lake in a scene that goes on for fucking ever, mm-hmm. and then getting to relish the payback, the vengeance of it? Like, how can we make it worse? Well, Let's involve an autistic person. Let's involve 
the sheriff so we can have corruption from an even deeper sort of okay. official channel and let's bring production value because in a weird way one of the weird compliments i gave to the first movie is that it's so ragged and so uh -huh. sparse in its production uh -huh. that it feels strangely real at times in an uncomfortable way uh -huh. this movie doesn't have that this no. movie has polish and I guess, like, he did do a couple sequels, which I have not seen and will never see. Um, but I, I looked him up on IMDb, and he does, like, Christmas movies for the family channels and stuff like this now. Like, There's one of, the, like, the most despicable characters in this. I looked up his filmography, and he's in the Hallmark Christmas movie. Yeah. So I wonder if it's the same... Reusing the same actors, right? Yeah. I don't know if he's trying to redeem himself or, like, cleanse himself of it by... Or, or maybe it's just a, a fitting punishment that he ends up, you know, in this level of obscurity. He still wins. He's still making movies and all this day, but... I don't understand the movie. I don't understand who it's for. I don't understand what itch it is scratching. I mean, a basic vengeance movie, like, that's classic form. You know, mm -hmm. somebody's wronged and they seek retribution. Uh, every Western ever made. Yeah. <laughs> or, or like, but um, it, an argument has been made that even those stories are some of the most base. It, it appeals to the most base part of us. Yeah. Um, but this takes it to the extra level because it's not just appealing to that, but we get an hour of rape and humiliation. Mm -hmm. And like... It's not just the nudity. Like, they put, like, a gun in her mouth and yes. make her suck on it. And, like, yeah. they laugh at her and cackle at her. They force an autistic guy to rape her. Yeah. Like, and it goes on and on and on. And the hope is, is that when this gets turned around, it's going to be really dramatically satisfying to see this vengeance eked out. And, again, all the director has done is let's up the ante. So how, how, let's make the vengeance worse. Let's have her stitch somebody's eyelids back and have yeah. crows yeah. peck at his face. Yeah. Let's have her sodomize someone with a shotgun. Yeah. Let's have her draw out these deaths as long as we possibly can. I hate it. I hate, I hate the movie. I hate the mentality behind the movie. I can't sit here and say, is it poorly made? I don't think it's poorly made. Is no. it poorly acted? I don't think it's poorly acted. No. Like... I like everybody on set knew what they were doing and they were making the movie as grating and despicable and offensive as they possibly could. But to what end, Jason? To what end? As a person who has watched every entry of Friday the 13th multiple times uh -huh. with a big fucking smile on my face, uh -huh. what is the fucking point of I Spit on Your Grave? In earnest. I, I don't know. I I did it as a blind buy because I had heard um, that it was some sort of a, a feminist revenge. Uh, and and I thought, well, maybe this is one of the ones that Tarantino was inspired by and kind of because he deals with revenge in most of his films. And it is it is shocking, but not shocking in the right way. And maybe I keep going, I, and I, I think it's a useless conversation. I should just get it out of my head of which is the better movie between the two. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just, 
This what, what pile of shit do you want to uh, bathe in? I mean, I this guess one's this one's better made, I guess, but like, yeah, it looks better, but almost that's a bigger insult in some yeah. ways that it is that it it looks good, but it is just as depraved. It was funny, like, because when I and I've, I've now had the pleasure of seeing both versions uh, twice, and the first time I saw the remake, I thought they were going to soften it. And for a little while, it looked like they were going to. And then when it got to that that endless torture scene, I was like, no, they are not softening it. Insult to injury with that sheriff, right, <laughs> is in the middle of uh, basically torturing this young woman. He gets a phone call and he's talking to his daughter asking if, if they're going to church together. Because it must be Sunday morning. Yeah. Right? And he has a daughter. And I, I think it's just thrown in there to just show even more what a sleazebag uh, this guy is. The weird the weird choice too to me is with this Jennifer, this Sarah Butler mm-hmm. um, and I, I think she does as good a job. I, I mean I guess you take I'm an acting gonna... job, it's a lead role or whatever, you understand why she's doing this but the choice they made in this one is she felt a little bit more like a, a zombie or a ghost like she it was, did a bit of a come from, you know, coming back from the grave type of thing here, which they didn't do in the original, which felt kind of silly to me. Yeah, well, they up the stakes a little bit in like they implicitly say we're going to kill you, and like uh, she throws herself off the bridge to escape, yeah. and they all assume she's dead, and they make that yeah. so they look for her, but they assume that she's dead. Um, but yeah, she comes back as this raging, but she's not who she was anymore. I wish I could get behind the feminist angle of these movies. I, 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 I don't think, see it. I think if I could get behind the feminist angle of the movie, even if I still didn't like the movie, I could at least like say, like, well, at least it was doing that. I think of another torture porn movie we talked about as Hostel, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, this is about assholes being tortured for money in Europe, and it's full of tits and violence, right? But there's something to it, right? These guys come to another country to exploit people and they themselves end up being exploited by those people. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a tiny insect brain to Hostel. Whereas I would argue there is no tiny insect brain mm-hmm. to these movies. And what's left of our main character? Is she strong? Is she better for what she's done? No, she's... What's left of her at the end? As the credits roll, is there any person left there? No. Like her trauma would be... I don't know. It's insurmountable. Yeah, it's insurmountable. And she's basically turned herself into a, you know, a killer. A and and, and it's, it's not like she's been redeemed. In the, uh-huh. No, it's, it, it's, she's it's really weird. She's become one of them in a weird it, way. The, the other point I want to make about these two movies is, you know, they, they sell it as, as feminist revenge but they are created by men. Yeah. So I think it's some sort of justification for some depraved male fantasy. I know in the original it was wasn't his girlfriend who was the lead actor and Yeah, well he ended up marrying the actress. There's yeah. obviously like a, a trust between them. And they would have to be trust with the director in order to do these scenes. Like mm. I do think they took it seriously. I just don't know why. They took it seriously. And again, I do think that if someone could tell me what the feminist angle of these movies were in a way that I understood or agreed with, 
then at least I could say, well, it's present. I don't mm-hmm. think it's worth it, but it's present. I think as graphic as this movie is, they were actually in a way less brutal about her, the violence on her, than they were about the violence on the men. Uh, in that we want to celebrate the violence on these men, mm-hmm. whereas we're disturbed by the violence on her. Mm-hmm. Whereas I found all of it, like all of it front to back, disturbing. And uh, again, I'm against the, the death penalty, but mm-hmm. I've always dropped the caveat. I'm against the death penalty unless it's my kid who's been killed. If it's my kid who's been killed, I will volunteer to pull the switch. Yeah. In fact, I insist upon the death. That's mm-hmm. a double standard. And I know it's a double standard, yeah. but I know it's a real But it's a thing. human reaction. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, if they even explored that, if the movie went past the end credits to see what this did to her, if she could come back from it, which it really doesn't look like she could, or even even like killing these people who did that to you, not the right move, but an absolutely understandable move. The sadistic evil, like the fact that she had all of these saw torture like things in her head I'm gonna melt this guy's face in a bathtub yeah I'm gonna have this guy get shot through the ass with a shotgun and kill his buddy like so that like it's sewing a guy's eyelids open and then rubbing fish on his face Mm -hmm. so that birds will come and peck his face like Mm -hmm. wronged or not that that plan came into your head and that you executed that plan you're fucking broken. Well, and, <laughs> and, and almost suggest that she had this idea ahead of time. What because book she, were you writing? She w- yeah, <laughs> I don't know what she was writing. She, we, never, we never do know what, what what's going on with that. She went to the lake to write a book. We know that. But, like, is she the Marquis de Sade? Is that, even that, I would hate that, but that would be a twist. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it would be awful and it would become like this. But, but that Raising place where home alone, but like it's, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't want to pitch that movie. But I, I think like she, she's. We see her jogging around this lake area, and she sees that abandoned thing with the the bathtub. Yeah. At that point, is she's thinking, well, that'd be a great place to kill someone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but again, I don't. even if that was set up, if she was writing a novel about a serial killer, so like she had that in her head, but it's mm, not. No. She. No. Like, and again, she's wrong. I'm not, I'm not wagging my finger at her. I'm on her side, largely, in this movie. Mm-hmm, it's just like, mm-hmm. these choices are not good choices for the movie. And I guess it's just like, what does, what did our audience, which I guess I have to count myself unproudly one of, what did the audience want when they watched the remake of I Spit on Your Grave? Mm-hmm. And they delivered that. Like, if you like the original I Spit on Your Grave, if you saw some value in it, I guess maybe you should watch the remake because they quote-unquote honored it, but I hate it. I just hate it. And I don't, you know, I don't like using the word hate. I know you don't. <laughs> I used to I used to overuse it on our <laughs> uh, my early episodes on this show. But not just the, like, again, I respect the actors in it, both the men and the, our female character. Like, to do those roles and to do them well... It's not an easy or fun thing to do. And in a way, congratulations for committing. But to what end? Again, finishing where I started, who is this movie for? Why was this movie made? And it has two sequels, and the original got a a sequel as well. So Somebody must uh, be... That's five I Spit on Your Grave movies, of which I've only seen two, and I only will see two, I think. I can firmly close the door on this franchise. What what makes me sad is I... You know, and, and the reason I saw the original uh, 
a second time was I was preparing for it to be part of uh, an episode for oh, for my podcast. And I thought, great, I'll be able to get rid of it because it's going to be it'll be the bottom movie. But out of respect for the the guest, right? Who asked that it, I I remove it from the list. I, I did that so. There might be a day where I have to watch it again. Oh, absolute trigger warning. If that, that obviously goes without saying, if you've listened to the review, clearly if you have any issues with sex or violence, stay far fucking away. Um, The the one familiar face in this, uh, I think, is Tracy Walter. He's the guy who kind of, the redneck guy, he gives her the keys to the... Place. Yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, like, I'm trying to remember what I've seen him in. But he's he... one of those faces. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, the sheriff executes him because he's a possible witness to all of the badness that was. Going yeah, on. that made no sense whatsoever. After kind of cons- no. getting the idea that they had conspired with uh, him, I, I like to just think. I mean, obviously, evil people exist. Violent people exist. Rapists exist. But like the this <laughs> this, this these five people found each other and they were all of well maybe the one guy was made into evil but they were all so perfectly you know home Stephen King villains there's nothing fucking redeemable there's no human being there like in any of them and they're working at the gas station of course yeah the the cliche stop in any horror movie uh (laughs) you know yeah I I, yeah I don't know I'm I'm over this one but yeah Enough said. Uh, I think probably number one for both of us. Yeah, yeah. Top of the list. Yeah, sure. Boom. Soderbergh is a director who I have a great deal of respect for. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything he does is amazing, but I like that he tries different things. He's a very, uh, well, he's all over the place. This is a guy who did like the Ocean's Eleven trilogy <laughs> uh, and Out of Sight and Traffic, but he also does weird movies like Schizopolis and Kafka and like blew up the indie independent movie scene in the early 90s with Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Yeah. And I find at a base level, it's going to be interesting. Like, uh, like it might not blow you away, but the movie's going to be interesting, is, is usually where I come in with Steven Soderbergh. And The Girlfriend Experience, which is an examination of high-end escort, and who stars a legitimate porn star, um, probably... One of my very least favorite Steven Soderbergh movies. And I'm a fan of his experimental work. He did another digitally shot movie called Bubble, which is not super accessible and, uh, you know, no George Clooney to be found anywhere in it. <laughs> not an easy story, not comfortably told. Uh, but, like, I can get into these, like, lo fi digital things. You and I reviewed the Danny Boyle picture, the <laughs> vacuuming completely nude in paradise. Yeah. Like, yeah. You can be rough hewn and still tell an interesting story and there's a lot of working against the movie it's a fascinating subject but I find the performances either flat or I don't understand where they fit in the movie we keep cutting to these guys these rich people on an airplane 
having different financial debates. Mm-hmm. And then they get off that plane and they walk to another plane and they get on that plane and then the debate continues on that other plane. And we keep cutting back to them. And I have no fucking idea what that has to do with the themes that are... So all the conversations people are selling stuff, it seems like. Yeah. We had a gym membership or, you know, their, what their dream job... That while they're doing their actual job, they're pitching the job that they want to do, uh, what they want from the, the escort, what the escort is expecting in return... Like, there's a lot of people making sales pitches. And I don't remember the movie making a lot of bubbles when it came out, but a TV show has happened since then, which I have not watched. But um, I think, so, I don't know how much of an actress our lead character is, Sasha Gray. She has a really striking look to her. And there's something very young and innocent about her face. And obviously... (laughs) What she does is nothing to do with being young and innocent, and there's that weird dichotomy there. Uh-huh. And the movie does deal with... It's not just about sex with a lot of these guys. The girlfriend experience is what that implies. That means dinner. That means conversation. That means getting to know the person. Uh-huh. That means having access to the individual, not just banging away, right? Uh-huh. Not just uh-huh. a physical exchange. Yeah. An emotional exchange is happening. And all of these things, I think, are interesting in ideas. The movie is an hour and 15 minutes long. It feels like it's two hours and 15 minutes long. And I guess I, it was interesting, but I don't know what the point. At the end of the movie, I didn't know how to feel or what the point of the movie was. And again, it's low on the bridge of Soderbergh movies for me, which is It has a base level of interesting. And uh, I like the way it was shot. I like some of the choices of angles. And I like... like this weird study that we're doing Uh on this actress. Like she doesn't actually say a lot in the movie. A lot of it is behavioral. And I wonder if that wasn't a deliberate choice. Um, But I feel a little bit separated from the movie. I feel like whatever I get out of the movie is what I bring to the movie. It might not have actually been there. It's my intellectual prowess that makes the movie interesting, maybe more than the movie itself. That's where I start on the girlfriend experience. I'm a little uncomfortable with it because I just shit talk one of my favorite filmmakers. You know, you know I'm a big fan of Soderbergh. Yeah. But uh, part of the deal when you experiment is that it's an experiment. And not all experiments are completely successful. So that's where I start on the girlfriend experience. It's, it's interesting because I, I don't disagree with anything you just said. Okay. Yet, for some reason, I really enjoyed this movie. And maybe I had zero expectations for it. Uh, I mean, I certainly had expectations for Steven Soderbergh as a director. Yeah. But I, I, I've seen this trend before in his movies where we're getting little clips and little bits and pieces of things. And he's kind of deconstructing the story. Part of my theory on what's going on with it is um, it, it, it came out in 2009 but it was filmed right in the middle of the financial crisis in 2008. And that's on the minds of all of these people. I mean, we're seeing some fairly rich and entitled people that are seeing their lives kind of fall apart. Um, if you live in New York City, you, you realize that everybody's trying to get paid. That's the thing. And when there's a big financial crisis like this, they're trying to figure out how to survive. And the only way they know how to do that is to sell. And you're, you're running into people all over New York that are trying to sell something. 
And so I think that's a bit of the piece that he's going for. I definitely picked up on that. That was a theme in the dialogue that seemed to come up again. Yeah, over and over again. And, and, And while these lives are crumbling, you know, and living, you know, these entitled but probably quite superficial lives, they're trying to find some way to uh, gain intimacy or some sort of a feeling. And, you know, that's the service that she provides, you know, making she likely feels nothing. Yeah. Except for for one important sequence I want to talk about in a bit, likely feels nothing. But she's giving the impression that, you know, she cares about these guys and they're feeling good after this and it's yeah not just there is sex involved but there it is a full date and the the last scene i really like the last scene in the movie it justifies the movie yeah um where uh spoilers for the end of the movie and it's not a movie a lot of people have seen so sometimes i don't like to do that but her last action um and given the person that she's talking to it I was just like, this is kind of a perfect way to end it, and that's where they ended it. Yeah. So that worked for me. I I didn't again, just so like the people know what we're talking about. This is, do, you, uh, do you want? Do you want? Okay. Do you want me to well, kind of give the full context? Her last client that we meet, yeah. uh, and we've seen her do this with other clients. They're just making conversation yeah. as they're casually undressing, and you assume that something sexual is about to take place. Yeah. She strips to her underwear. He strips to his underwear, and he just embraces her. Like he wants to hold something beautiful for a while. Yeah. And just doing that is making him shake with emotion. Yeah. And we cut to credits. Like she doesn't know, or I don't think she fully understands what service she's providing him, but he needs that. And (laughs) he's getting his money's worth. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That is a a really interesting scene. And again, Mm -hmm. the movie could have benefited for more scenes more like of those it. i agree completely with you the guys on the plane yeah and the whole thing is her she she has this boyfriend who has fully embraced the the really? lifestyle that she leads in fact encourages this i think with some rules there's some rules in here and she's bending some of these rules with this one client that she feels like she's having a genuine human connection with and when that happens he's been invited by these he works in the gym his rich clients to go for a weekend in, in Vegas for, you know, gambling and sex and everything else. And he wasn't going to go, but then he decides to go. And then we're just kind of watching that journey. But th- that, that whole bit isn't, doesn't add up and isn't as interesting to I me. I wasn't as connected with I, his I, character. I felt yeah. like he's, like, that, that relationship that they have is over. And then he's just separating himself but he's going into the arms of people who do the exact same thing, but without the expectation of having to have a real relationship uh, w- with them. Because we see more than one hooker yeah. kind of uh, cozying yeah. up to him um, towards the end. But long scenes yeah. with, with these guys talking about, again, I don't know if Soderbergh was thinking, oh, this has happened. Like, I, I plan to make this movie. But this historical event has happened, so I need to capture it. Yeah. And I need to get, you know, my characters talking about this as, you know, this point in my career and that I was around for the this point. But that, that stuff doesn't work as well for me. I, I I don't think she's an amazing actor. Don't get me wrong. I'm not singing her praises. But considering um, the world that she's in, 
which is not known for acting. I think she does a good job of like it's subtle enough. Um, and the scene that I most liked in her performance is she goes to see one of her regulars and and she had been with somebody who um, was really grossed her out. Really, really horrible and had promised to kind of uh, help her with her, her website yeah, and then was like a prostitute Yelp he, review or something. Yeah, like. and he just kind of tears her apart and you know, destroys her chance at getting future business. Um, and just the, the stuff that he was asking to do. When we see how upset she is, um, that I I believe that. I mean, you know. And I appreciate it because, honestly, because of the nature of the movie it was, and maybe because of the porn, because she was a porn star, I was waiting for that scene where she got violently assaulted to happen. Maybe I was scarred because of I Spit on Your Grave. Yeah. And I was really grateful it that wasn't. we didn't see that. But It's a creepy scene, though. when the, the, very like the, gross. The, 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 the conversation. Yeah. But not actually seeing the... It seems to me with something on this subject, you either need to have something interesting to say, you need to be titillating, or you need to go full out exploitation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like the movie did none of those things. Like, there's very little nudity in it, too, considering, considering the leads of... Yeah, so I think there's one scene to, yeah. at the beginning, and that's about it. And maybe because it was the last of the movies I saw, maybe I was worn out and I appreciated... Um, the fact that it was holding back a little bit more as opposed to yeah. showing everything which some of the other movies did. So, well, And it was different ways where they showed her lack of control and her naivety in some mm-hmm. respects. She likes to act like she's in control and she's just patiently yeah. looking like she's interested, but she does get exploited and she does allow herself to be vulnerable when she mm-hmm. shouldn't. Mm-hmm. The boyfriend is sort of portrayed as an asshole as he's shouting her down with this client that she's developing a crush on. Yeah. And he's pretty harsh about it, but nothing that he says is untrue, right? Yeah. This guy is married with two kids, and you're his prostitute. Mm-hmm. You need to be real about this relationship. And she's not able to be, right? Mm-hmm. And again, like, there are interest, there's lots interesting in yeah. the movie. I just... But- but he's also trying to possess her, or you know, mm-hmm. and when when she does what what she wants, as ill advised as it is, and leads to you know heartbreak for her, um, she is still kind of not because she's not kind of giving in and saying you know okay yeah you're right you know um, he he leaves her outright and then she's just as lonely. At the end, I suspect, as well, it's tough to tell what that, like that, the time lapse stuff. He was but, being an asshole, but he was also not wrong, which is it's not wrong. But but she's left at the end with just as alone as any one of her Johns. I mean, I, Johns is maybe a harsh term to a use for this, but made her even, clients. A case could be made she's more lonely than her clients because she doesn't have anyone like her in her life. Like, yeah, who's comforting her? Yeah. Nobody. I don't know. I wanted to like it more. Again, I, I, I think when I, it's a director that I like, I, I grade it a little bit harder, and that, that might not always That's, be fair. No, it, it's fair. Like, it's fair. Uh, so it's my least favorite Soderbergh film in a lot of or one of my least favorite Soderbergh films, but that still means it's interesting. And if you're a fan of... Like, if this sounds like it would be interesting for you, check yeah. it out. Well, if it you're is a completist only, for his... Yeah. You want to see everything he's done. Sometimes I feel like he became so successful and he won his Oscar for Traffic 
and he had the Oceans movies that he thought, this is too much mainstream. I need to go back and go back to the digital camera and work, get back to the indie cinema that I started out in. He just earnestly loves the actual, like, on-set hand-making of movies. He, mm-hmm. like, that's... Yeah. It's not promoting the movie. It's not raking in the awards. It's not even screening the movie. It's being on set yeah. is what he loves to do. Uh, so I, I respect that about Soderbergh, for yeah. sure. Anyway, I, I liked it more than you did, and... You know, but I, I I don't disagree with you on the points yeah. that you. It's short. You're making. It it like I said, it's an hour and fifteen minutes long. It feels longer than that, but like it's a minimal time investment. Um, so I would say, yeah, if 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 this sounds interesting to you, for sure. But honestly, like if you're if you're in it for the titillation, no, like it's not a it's not a sexy movie. Mm-hmm. It's not an erotic movie. No. Uh, it's a conversation piece. It's an experimental piece. Mm-hmm. It's funny, there's another movie we're talking about that's short and felt like a three-hour movie to me, and it wasn't this one, so... Well, let's move on, shall we? Hey, I'm Richard. What do you want me to do, baby? What do you do? I make a lot of noise. There is a place where dreams are exchanged. I mean, if I was going to head a Vegas with you, there'd be a lot of conditions. Where fantasies are brokered. Richard, you can't do this. We have to stick to the agreement. What if I paid you $10,000? And where reality is bought and sold. So, uh... What sort of business are you two in? It's about money. You have it and I don't. You pay me to do this, so I did it. You pay me to enjoy it, so I enjoyed it. What did you think, that I was falling in love with you? So, The Center of the World is directed by Wayne Wang, who's a director I got interested in after I watched the movie Smoke, which I mentioned in our introduction. This couldn't be more different than Smoke, but... uh, uh, He's an interesting filmmaker, kind of inconsistent, but he never makes the same movie twice, which Mm -hmm. to me, like, the fact that he's kind of indefinable makes him interesting on one hand, but on the other hand, it's like, because you don't know what you're going to get, it's hard to bank, for sure, this is going to work for me. So Wayne Wang, I'm sort of like, let's say 50-50 on, but I give him lots of points because of how much I love smoke. Mm -hmm. I'm 100% on Molly Parker. Molly Parker is a fan-fucking-tastic Canadian actress absolutely fearless absolutely like severely talented and uh she just brings some kind of emotional integrity to every role she plays and she's played a lot of really troubling characters and first time i saw her was a movie called kissed where she plays a necrophiliac and it is graphically fucking explored i've seen the movie once it was in the 90s i've never forgotten it i don't know that i want to see it again but i remember thinking it that actress has got huge guts to do this these yeah. roles. And she will, and has, continued to take these roles when she can get them. The United States does not use Molly Parker as much as they should. No. She is fucking amazing. Like, whatever I say going forward in this review, I stand by the fact Molly Parker is fucking amazing. She's in The Wicker Man, and she's good in it, okay? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, the remake, obviously. Yeah. So, really, in a lot of ways, except for the fact that this doesn't star a uh, a legitimate porn star, there's a lot of similarity to the center of the world and the girlfriend experience, Mm -hmm. in that it's sort of lo-fi approach, video approach, 
jumping around a little bit with the timeline and sort of seeing different conversations but having more context on them because more has been revealed in the movie. Um, I keep on wanting to say Stellan Sarsgaard, but it's Peter not. Sarsgaard. Peter Sarsgaard yeah. is one of these like uh, internet rich guys from the beginning of the uh, 2000s. The just dot com. Dot com millionaire. Way too much money and doesn't sort of new money. <laughs> um, and he ended up at a relationship and he hasn't had any kind of contact, or any sex, any kind of relationship for all over two years. And his friends basically saying, "Look, you're a millionaire. You need to you need to solve this problem." And he has kind of a meet cute with Molly Parker, and we get basically kind of like the opening of Pretty Woman in sort of a lot of ways, right? I hadn't made that comparison. That's interesting. Yeah, it's absolutely I think fair though. Uh, he's a millionaire. He doesn't look like he would need to hire a prostitute. Uh, she's a stripper, by the way. She's not, per se, a prostitute, although that's yeah. the role that she ends up playing in the movie. Well, she agrees to become an escort. She will go with him to Vegas for a weekend, and she will be with him. She will be his companion. No kissing on the mouth and no penetration, but that leaves a lot of things open. It's going to be... It will be highly sexual. And certain hours, too. And so, yeah, yeah, like... It's very transactional for her, mm-hmm. but for him, it's obviously like everything's been working out for him, and this is the next thing that's going to work out for him. And uh, they're both interesting. She doesn't need to be a prostitute, and he doesn't need to hire a prostitute, but here they are in this relationship, and the power dynamic between them, and what does it mean? And that's kind of interesting in itself, and I like both of those actors. Over top of it, we have the whole sen- the the sexualized nature of the film, and I think of all the movies that we're going to talk about, this is the most explicitly sexual as far as what we're going to I see so. yeah. on screen, and uh, that was sort of the big push of the movie. In the end, I think it's the conversations that are in a weird way more interesting than the sex uh, in the movie. But I mean. Say what you will about the movie. You see things that you're not going to be... You do not expect to see. It is explicitly adult in that way Mm -hmm. while having a conversation about it. To me, the center of the world is a more successful version of the girlfriend experience. But it does suffer from a lot of the same problems as the girlfriend experience in the meandering nature of it and the inevitable nature of it. Like I said in The Girlfriend Experience, I was just waiting for the scene where she eventually gets raped. Well, in this movie, we get that scene, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the motivations of the characters, do they make sense scene to scene? These are interesting conversations to have after you've watched the movie. And I think the movie has enough interesting things in it, mainly Molly Parker's very bold performance, like I said, that I do recommend the movie. But I will drop the caveat. It's very, very much not for everyone. And it doesn't have clean answers for you. The ending of the movie is a hard thing to sit on. Where do we feel about it? Are we happy with where things have ended up? Who are these people? Do we know them? I don't think we have answers to all of those questions. And there's nothing wrong with a movie that just asks a bunch of questions and leaves you there. But I felt like we were going somewhere. Like I felt we were going to like lead to this. Even if it was a happy ending and they moved in together and they, they, they you know got married and had the house and kids there was going to be an end point. And uh, basically it's a long middle 
a long, mm-hmm. highly sexually charged middle, mm-hmm. which I found interesting. Um, so that's, I guess, where I start <laughs> at the center of the world. Uh, was this the movie you were talking about that felt five hours long? Yeah, not five hours, but <laughs> longer than it actually is. I'll start off with segues, and then I'll get to my opinion of it. You probably guess what my opinion is, but um, uh, I wanted to do a shout out for uh, Carla Gugino, Gugino yeah. Uh, yeah, who's Molly Parker's friend who lives in Vegas, lives, and I think she's more explicitly a hooker. She injects um, yeah. herself into the situation. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and there's the, kind of a bit of a, a lesbian or bisexual relationship there too, and like she's part of that that scene with the the rape and the everything that um, seems like almost an inevitable scene in I, these types of I'm, movies. I, 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 I'm going to shock you until we got to a scene very, very, very late in the movie. I was honestly debating whether this was going to be number six. Of six, and we have we've already talked about a just god awful <laughs> film. Right. So that gives you an idea of what a bad time I had Watching. with this. Um, Wayne, but uh, no doubt with this director Wayne Wang. Two years before, he did a movie called um, Any uh, Anywhere But Here, which was a mother daughter film that you could Car probably artists. show to anybody yeah. with uh, uh, Susan Sarandon and Nat- Natalie Portman. You yep. know. Uh, th- th- this guy has range. I like smoke as well. Didn't he also do? Um, they did that improvised movie, which was kind of a follow up of smoke blue in the, blue, face. Blue in the face. Yeah, which I thought was a very interesting experiment as well. Some people didn't like it, but it feels I, like deleted scenes from smoke. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah. it's still if you like smoke, check it out. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd rather see that than see this one again. And I like the actors. I, I mean, Pierce Sarsgaard often is playing kind of the sleazy guy or the guy it's the adulterer or you know I, I i've seen this type of thing before but I, in this case i think he's just a really you know lonely misguided guy and, and and he has a lot of a lot of money as you said doesn't know quite what to do with it um and he's trying to create some sort of intimacy which he ultimately falls for but again spoilers for a movie but my favorite scene is you know the rules get broken and after the rules get broken, um, then Peter Sarsgaard and Molly Parker are in two different places. And when the reveal happens, and I believe her line says, I- I'm your whore. Yeah. And his reaction, again, such a, uh, a male, possessive, whatever. Oh. That, that scene, that if fight. That's the case, yeah. That, that fight scene between them. That's where it's like I was waiting for this scene to happen because we have two in well we have three in here but in that scene two very talented actors. My other problem with the movie is it looks cheap, like really cheap. It is not aged well at all. I I remember like the digital revolution, those digital films that came out, and it it, it reminded me of the worst of those. And because it just looks so cheap. I, I just my, I was not in it at any point. I, I was not caring about these characters. I kept thinking to myself, it's funny you mentioned Pretty Woman. I kept thinking about leaving Las Vegas, right? which is, to me, a masterpiece. And I, I kind of felt like they were trying to do some sort of a leaving Las Vegas type of a film here. 
with this, and it was nowhere close. I thought it kind of failed on every level if that's what they were trying to do. Different, I guess, alcoholism, but, I mean, the same Elizabeth Shue's character operates in the same world as uh, the main female characters that we see in this film. Um, but that movie, while it was a modest but budget independent film, um, had such emotional impact. At the end, the the scene in the strip club, I just really didn't care. I didn't care about any of these characters. And, and the Carla Gugino character I kind of cared about for a while, but then she does some stuff where I'm just like, Okay, like, she's horrible, too. Are you so, on the level? Oh, no, you're not. You, you want to like her, but they keep giving you reasons to not. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that, I mean, that's the, the, the reality of it, and the complexity is that these are, you know, not lovable characters. And, yeah, I, I probably would be even more mad at this movie if they'd gone and got married and had the 2.5 children in the suburbs. That would have been, been a giant. But That would have been the wrong ending, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As far as the lo-fi digital thing, I, I kind of just sort of clocked that in the same way we were talking about the 60s movie. Yeah. It's just, this is the time the movie was made, and there was quite a few independent movies that looked and felt like this. Mm -hmm. um, there are better I, ones that looked and felt true. like it, though. I didn't know if it was the budget or if it was also a deliberate choice for it to be lo-fi and grungy along with the subject. It sort of feels like it's sleazily shot like a porn movie almost in some ways but it's so much more high-minded than an actual porn movie would be uh -huh. so i don't know why it would choose that aesthetic for me the interesting thing is and i i think i, I would have ended the movie differently is the my yeah. big problem but yeah. when you ask yourself certain questions like how does molly parker feel about the peter sarsgaard character because when they first meet it feels like there's a genuine warmth between them but after the money no. is put on the table, it's like she chooses the money over the relationship and it becomes purely transactional. When she's doing her stripper sexy thing, she is playing the character. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not the same, but it is the same when I was used to wait tables a lot. Yeah. I had a waiter voice. I had a yeah. waiter persona mm -hmm. that I would put on while I was dealing with the yeah. people. And I was just a hair friendlier and a hair you know, mm -hmm. bigger mm -hmm. than, I, than the real Larry would be. I feel like once he put the money on the table, that's all it was for her. She'd like abandoned anything else that was real about the, the relationship. And for him, he really was liking her and wanting this to be real. And he didn't understand that by entering, by paying her to be with him, he's destroyed that. The end, towards the end of the movie, after he's crossed the line and they've had the fight and let's not sugarcoat it, a rape has taken place. Mm -hmm. He's sitting in the room, appalled with himself, appalled by the whole situation, not knowing how to react. Molly Parker crawls out of bed, sits down in front of him, opens her legs, and masturbates in front of him, finishes in front of him. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And then she leaves the room without saying a word. Uh -huh. She's just been raped. What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? This is so edgy. This is so adult. To me, that was her saying, the only person in this room capable of getting me off is me is me yeah fuck you uh -huh. and she leaves and if that was the last thing that was ever said between them i think it would have been a better movie but it seems to me like he understands then oh it's just a transaction well then i'll just pay for it then yeah and to me that's a less interesting ending of the movie but 
I think there's enough interesting in the movie, and like I said, the performances, that I do think that it's a worthy experience. Mm. Uh, sounds like you do not. I, I don't, and I mean, all of this is so predictable, too, because we, we have these early scenes. I mean, we don't completely, we get the, the story later as to why they're in Vegas together. Yeah. But those early scenes where they're in Vegas, and they go to the, the shopping mall, and all of that, she just looks miserable. And he's so excited, and I'm going to show you this, and we're, let's let's do this, let's go on, you know. And, She's at work. Yeah, and she just. So it's not a real, real surprise to me. It's um, not for me. I mean, I can relate to it, not in that, that there's money involved, but that if I see or or the sort of young naivety of love, right? He's mm-hmm. not young; he should know better than this. Mm-hmm. But because he loves her or likes her, in his head, that should be enough. Yeah. Both people need to have that, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I just, Didn't I mean, it's it's not the it's not the worst thing I've seen. I, right. I just, I found it a frustrating experience, and I, I of course afterwards I watched the girlfriend experience, and I thought it was going to be a similar type of thing, and maybe that's why it overperformed for me because I was prepared for. Yeah. The miserable time I had with this one. To me, they're kind of in a similar place in my head, but I might give the edge to the center of the world. But that might have as much to do with Molly Parker as anything else. I am a fan of hers. Mm-hmm. If you and she's a better actor, of course, yeah. than and if you Sasha have a chance to see a TV show called Twitch City, mm-hmm. it's such a great show. She's yeah. so great in yeah. it. Support Molly Parker. Yes, uh, and whether or not you like the movie, I think you'll walk away saying, "Man, that's a gutsy actress." Oh, she is. Yeah, but, she is. She yeah. goes for it. That's for sure. Good enough? Yeah. What's the trick to which? Marriage. Trust, I guess. Trust. It's very interesting. I can't remember when I like the guy as much as I like you, but the truth of the matter is you're a wimp. Eddie! Careful! You think you can be alive without taking risks. You want to make love to my wife, but you're afraid you'll get caught. You are insane, Eddie. This is how you die. These little things you deny yourself. Samples taken from the victim's body prove you had sex with her and the murder weapon had your prints on it. You have to help me understand this, Richard. Please, help me. I didn't kill her. I'm telling you, it's a lie. Evidence, dear boy. Evidence. This is a nightmare. Who is Eddie? Come on, Richard. Where'd he come from? Come to Papa. Well, we've talked about a couple of high-minded <laughs> adult films. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about one that's not particularly high-minded at all. <laughs> Consenting Adults is a 1992 erotic thriller, maybe. It's not that erotic, to be honest. Directed by Alan J. Pakula. Uh, it's interesting for a few reasons. Kevin Klein is the star of it. It's not that he hasn't done movies like this before, yeah. of course, Body Heat and stuff like that. But it's not the kind of role that he's known for. Uh, I most people when they think of Kevin Klein, they think of sort of more lighter fare, fish called Wanda, or mm-hmm. I love you to death, or in and out, in and out. You yeah. know, like yeah. the lighter. And uh, so it wasn't necessarily the obvious choice for him. But these movies were really big at the time. Usually about husbands who make bad choices, cheat on their wives, and spend the entire movie suffering <laughs> because of it. Typically, it's a, either Michael Douglas or a Michael Douglas type. 
It's funny in this case that it's uh, Kevin Klein for a couple of reasons. Like I don't, like I said, I don't associate him with this type of role. And on a couple of different pages, when I was looking up the movie, which was not a lot written about, which says a lot too. <laughs> a lot of people said it's one of the few uh, movies where Kevin Klein's not where it's not a comedy, but he keeps his mustache. A mustache means he's funny. And like three different places sourced this. There's a lot of interest in Kevin Klein's mustache or something. But right around the same time, he'd made another film called Grand Canyon, yes. which was I great. Love, oh, I love that movie. Which was fantastic. Mm-hmm. This is none of those things. <laughs> like, of that, even of this era of these sort of cheesy erotic thrillers of your basic instincts and your deceived and sleeping with the enemies, mm-hmm. I think this ranks pretty low. I think what makes it interesting or close to interesting is the cast. Let me dare to speak of Kevin Spacey. Ooh. How he should not be named. Yeah. There's certain things about this whole uh, reinvention or reevaluating yeah. of Kevin Spacey that uh, there was a time where if someone would ask who's one of your favorite actors, that Kevin Spacey would have been on that list for me. <laughs> you know, yeah. And uh, the fact that we know all these terrible things about him doesn't suddenly make him a worse actor. And I noticed him early. I remember movies like The Ref and Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah. In Glengarry Glen Ross, he was surrounded by people way more famous than he was, and he was more than holding his own. And I remember noticing him. The same two months, I think, that... These came out. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, this was while he was on his way up. Not everybody was aware of Kevin Spacey. And when you go back and revisit his stuff, there are times where the Kevin Spacey angle helps, where, like, in Seven... When you see Kevin Spacey in Seven now, it's like, great, he's evil, we're supposed to hate him, we're allowed to hate him. <laughs> so when he plays his Kevin Spacey villain roles, it's almost just another layer of paint has been put on it. This is a rare early Kevin Spacey role where I actually don't think he's that strong in the movie. I, For my money, I think he's overplaying it. He's supposed to be a master manipulator, a sociopath, obviously, yeah. the villain of the piece, obviously. But I think the first half of the movie, we're supposed to be wondering, is this guy legit? Is this guy, is he friend or foe? And there's something on Kevin Spacey's face from moment one in this movie where it's like, well, you're the villain. (laughs) Um, But in a more real way, Kevin Klein is also the villain. (laughs) The series of terrible decisions he's making, how easily he is manipulated. And then again, how ridiculous the consequences keep spiraling, you know. It's not just that he's wanted for murder, but this guy's now moved in with his wife. And, like, it just... it It's ludicrous. The movie is ludicrous and over the top. And I, I think maybe it would have benefited from leaning into that and embracing it a little bit more. I think what's happened here is that a good director and a good cast sold a pretty weak script. And it is completely forgettable. There's a reason that there's almost nothing written about this movie like you can find online to this day. Is it terrible? No. Is it great? No. It kind of sits there. It kind of... It it deserves the fate that it's actually acquired, you know? But I really like Mary Elizabeth Mastantonio as an Mm -hmm. actress. I'm Mm kind of sad that she vanished. I think somewhere around A Perfect Storm, she just stopped showing up in movies for me. I think she did some TV. But I just, I I miss her presence. She's a good actress. Completely thankless role here, but she does the best she can with it. Our friend Kurt met her on the, uh, uh, he was an extra on Law & Order SVU, I think, and she was on that show. But again, I haven't really seen her in much. 
Well, anyway, I, I like her. Forrest Whitaker, dependable supporting actor, mm-hmm. but I think it says something that when I watched this movie again, when his name showed up, I was like, holy shit, I have no memory of Forrest Whitaker being in this movie. <laughs> and I think there's a reason for a couple of it. Like, there's not much flash and dash to that role. He shows up, he delivers some exposition, and then he completely vanishes from the movie. It's not worth getting mad at. It's not worth getting excited about. It's the just a bland, flavorless mint of a movie. If you're into the erotic thrillers of the late 80s, early 90s, because they do have a very specific flavor, this does have that. But the other ones are either funnier or you know, more suspenseful. So it's hard to get mad at consenting results, but I just can't get excited about it. Mm-hmm. That's where I start. Yeah. <laughs> I was really excited to revisit it. I I, I must have rented it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am a fan of that genre of, of film from the 90s, uh, mostly. And I, I do have some nostalgia for it, I guess. Uh, I'm starting to see a few movies that are kind of in that vein coming out. I I just saw Deep Water with Ben Affleck um, uh, on on Prime, and it reminded me so much of of that type of a film. And you're right, many of them have been forgotten, and maybe they've been forgotten for a good reason. Yet I remember when that came out, and I want to see it, and I want to get a 40-year-old's evaluation on it as opposed to a teenager's evaluation on it. Right. Um, and I, I like it more than you do. I'll, okay. I'll start off with that. I think in 1992, this was the first time I heard of Kevin Spacey. Right. Um, and I I remember the early reviews were like, this guy is, is great, and he sort of comes out of nowhere, and he kind of steals the film from everybody else. And... You know, this is before he played a million different villains, and yeah. we would almost expect it. When we see it now, and he, I think he moves next door, and he comes in on that. Uh, yeah, it's the true. Car. We're, and primed. It, it, We're primed with Spacey. Yeah. I yeah. will concede that. Yeah, and right. I, I just don't think audiences at that time would have been. You're right. Would have been, and and there were just a couple things in there that seemed uh, a little bit like, well, maybe 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 we're we've certainly seen Kevin Klein's frustration. In an early scene, he he's a musician who does jingles, and he just gets so frustrated and screams at his boss. And there's, you know, a, at that point in the marriage where you know they're they're struggling a little bit with the affection and all that. There's stresses. There's financial stresses, and this guy come comes in and you know he's a Fancy. wheeler dealer and finds some ways to try to fix these things. But you know he. I mean, it's very telegraphed that, okay, um, you know, Klein gets along with his wife, and then he seems to have more interest with uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. And and then when he comes up with that idea when they're in the club, like, when our wives are both asleep, let's just switch and, you know, see if they notice or whatever. And it's played well in that kidding, not kidding sort of way. yeah. Yeah. It's and Alan J. Pakula was, was a great director, and I think we have a, a super. I, my problems with the art of the screenplay for sure, but super talented A level director, and for the most part an A level cast. Um, and uh, this time I actually like I, 
I was like, yeah, Forrest Whitaker was solid. You're right. He just kind of disappears from the film, and it's too bad because I wanted some more of him, um, for sure, just because it was just a, a different kind of character. He he comes in when everything is falling apart for Kevin Klein, and, and he seems like this, you know, this character who comes in and kind of saves Klein and doesn't, you know, he has some he suspicions about what's happened. Yeah. He smells a rat yeah. with Kevin Spacey character, and he should. Because yeah. he's done this before the exact same way. Yeah. Twice. Yeah. Again, it's, that's bad yeah. writing. That yeah. is well, bad writing. <laughs> it, it is. And I think the setup I I got behind is colorful. I, I kind of bought Kevin, you know, Kevin Spacey's charm and the character's charm early on. But when we get kind of late in the second act and definitely the third act... Uh, it becomes ridiculous and predictable. There's a scene on a rooftop it's where I'm like, oh, that's thriller. this is where this character is going to die. <laughs> it's uh, every thriller you've ever yeah. seen. It's yeah. every thriller you've yeah. ever seen. And <laughs> and it is, you know, and, you know, Master Antonio kind of starts to figure out Spacey way later than a woman of her intelligence would have. Um, it, yeah, so I, I, just, I, I, I had, I guess, fonder memories of it. From my teenage brain memory, being not a great, but kind of a solid thriller in this the subgenre, it was worse than what I had remembered. Yet I liked enough of the first half to sort of give it a mild pass. But when we first looked at this list, I thought to myself, "Okay, this is probably going to be battling, or maybe not even battling for third place. Uh, it's not going to be third place." Right. So, this is another one where I think we're in different places, but I don't disagree with you. Right. Maybe where I do disagree is I like Klein in this type of a role. Uh, I, I I like Spacey. Sorry, I, 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 he 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 is a I great like actor. Horrible person, great actor. Uh, Picasso, absolutely concede, horrible person, great artist. Yeah, I mean, I will concede what you say though. I think that now we're primed with space, Kevin <laughs> Spacey. And now it does play like a very typically evil Kevin Spacey yeah, role. Yeah. In 1992, it wouldn't have. No. And I will concede that. But I will say watching it in 2022, yeah, uh, like no part of me thought that Kevin Spacey's character was anything but but crooked. Mm-hmm. And Well, he is I, crooked. And, and we, we see how crooked he is. Right away. Yeah. But, like, I mean, that he, he was going to be he, our villain. He, right? fa- he fakes an injury. And that's... Um, Big hint here that this guy is not on the level. Not on the level. And like, even if you, even if you're doing like the Ice Storm. Speaking of another Kevin Klein movie, yeah, very good film. People are much better film. People yeah. are, are are swingers. Yeah. Uh, they sort of go into it with the understanding, or like they step around it cautiously. Mm-hmm. There's something about like, I can see the way you're looking at my wife. You want to sleep with her? Sure. Like, even if you are a swinger, I don't think you should be that okay with like. Your neighbor eyeballing your wife, <laughs> like you don't know that we're swingers. Like same thing with Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. They were friends beforehand, sure, but the emotional baggage of the fact that your ex husband murdered this guy's wife, where that's the way you're understanding it. There's no way that they're going to be comfortable around each other, let alone yeah, being together. I, like that whole wing of the screenplay. Yeah. 
yeah, she slowly figures it out. But by that time, I've kind of lost all respect for her. Yeah. And I've already yeah. lost all respect for the Kevin Klein character, right? But like, she's not served well no. in this She's a great play. actress. But yeah, she, she she's better than the character she was given. And I, I get it. Like, Alan J. Pakula calls me up to be in the movie. Gonna and I, I'm going to be playing Kevin Klein's wife. And, you know, um, sure, it's a, you know... A, atypical Hollywood thriller, but it's also probably a, a good paycheck. Yeah. And uh, I, I get it, but it, it's it, when they talk about examples of, of bad roles for women in the 90s. That's one of them. That's the, compared to her and some other films where she's given more to do. Um, and the reveals just aren't great. You need these good sort of third act reveals and none of them really pay off in the way that you want them to. Yeah. His plan is stupid, and mm-hmm. once he, you know, realizes that Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio knows him, he could, turns on, again, full-on Stephen King villain. Like, uh, I don't know. I, I do think it falls apart, but I will stand by what I said at the beginning. I think it's a really good director and a really good cast, mm-hmm. making the best out of a not very good And I, I will revisit it. It's not... Some of the movies we're talking about, I... Odds are I will never see or I'll, I'll see because I have to for my podcast. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll probably give Consenting Adults a bit of time, but I'll probably give it another day in court and see how I feel about it again. But very mixed to maybe maybe the nostalgia meter is up a little bit more than it should be with this one, and right. I'm not looking at it. You know, well, and it did come out right around enough. the time where I was finally able to go see R-rated movies by mm-hmm. myself. So, And I, I wasn't, so yeah. that had that... <laughs> That you talked about forbidden that fruit. Yeah. forbidden fruit type of thing, yeah. But somehow I I must have rented a copy from the video store where they would let me rent R-rated movies, and I saw it. And by the way, most of these movies that we're talking about have not aged particularly well at all. I remember thinking that uh, Sleeping with the Enemy was kind of amazing when I first saw it, and it's pretty humdrum when you watch it now. I haven't watched that one uh, in years. But, uh, yeah. Basic Instinct, I remember thinking was really amazing when I first mm-hmm. saw it as a teenager. It's kind of like gross to watch now. Like it's nineteen ninety two. There were so many of these movies that came out. Yeah, there were all these great comedies, and there were a ton of these psychological thrillers. Yeah, and some of them I just have uh, probably a, a some sort of strange place in my heart for them where I'm cheering for them more than I probably should thirty years later. It's true. Yeah. Doesn't and again, if it hits you at the right time, it hits you at the right time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think this is an is what it is review. Love this part. I mean, God, what can you expect when you're on top? You know, it's like Napoleon when he was the king. You know, people were just constantly trying to conquer. You know, in the Roman Empire, so it's history repeating itself all over again. Oh, 
Okay, so Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights. Uh, that's the best movie on this list. I'm going to say that. I know that that's not a lot for you. I know you have some strong feelings about uh, Midnight Cowboy. For my money, even though you've heard me bitch in the past that Paul Thomas Anderson definitely, you know, wears his influences on his sleeve. I, I Maybe you sounded more disparaging than I should have when mm-hmm. I said that. Tarantino wears his influences on his sleeve and no one says he's a terrible... But I've said in the past, and I'm not the only one who said it, I remember hearing it on uh, Film Spotting, the Chicago podcast, and when the guy said it on that, I felt like he'd stolen the thought out of my mind. But I'm going to say it again, just to get it out of the way. If you look at Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas, and you look at Boogie Nights, you're essentially watching the structure of the identical film, okay? We see the rise of this guy from the time he's a child into this criminal enterprise, the middle of the film is punctuated by an extravagant extended long shot, and the last half an hour of the film is an almost separate compartmentalized depiction of the downward spiral leading to the mm-hmm. bitter ends. Structurally, how the movie is approached, how the story is told, almost cut and pasted from Martin Scorsese. That said, this is, I'm not the first person to say this either. If you're going to steal, steal from the best. Mm-hmm. And even though similarly about how they're approached and the, the, the sort of arc of the story being identical, one of them is about the porn industry and one of them is about organized crime. Or I guess in a way they're both about organized crime. But yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, the energy and the like just the flow of the movie... It just drags you through. It's it's over two and a half hours long, but unlike a movie earlier on that I said was an hour and 15 minutes and felt like two and a half hours, <laughs> this is two and a half hours and it feels like an yeah. hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. Anybody who was or was about to be famous in the 1990s is in this fucking movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's crazy. Again, like watching it again now, it's almost like Almost Famous, the movie Almost Famous. Yeah. You watch that? Everybody in the fucking planet is in that yeah. movie yeah. <laughs> and uh, this is definitely another one of those either people who are about to pop huge or already were and uh, it sort of briefly sort of reinvigorated the, the career of Burt Reynolds who mm-hmm. apparently had to do the whole movie holding his nose because he found the subject matter very distasteful <laughs> mm-hmm. which is funny because I believe he posed in Playgirl magazine <laughs> off the room what is amazing to me about the movie is that I'm not that interested, to be honest, in the world of pornography. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think in a weird way, from a movie standpoint, it would be more interesting to examine the life of a prostitute than a porn star. I don't know why. I guess it's the danger um, that there's just something more, I don't know, criminal or dangerous about it, more mm-hmm. cinematically romantic than somebody who just gets paid for having sex. But it is riveting. From start to finish, it is full of scenes that are like either terrifying or heartbreaking or both. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of adrenaline kicked into the movie, and we take the ride with the characters. Like the actual technical filmmaking is usually a reflection of the mental place the characters are in, usually the Mark Wahlberg character, but sometimes they'll borrow it into the other characters. And we see the full facet of their lives, you know. Julian Moore got a lot of attention for the movie, too. I really love her in the movie, but uh, she's got this weird baby voice that she has. and uh, she's, she's, her, porn, she, her porn voice, her yeah. Porn, yeah, and, but she does use it in her real life. 
And uh, you realize it like she's a mother of two girls. And that same voice seems really appropriate, like a mom's voice talking to her two mm. little girls. Mm-hmm. And that that's the same voice she uses mm-hmm. as a porn star. Uh, mm-hmm. There's all sorts of weird corners to the movie. Burt Reynolds, uh, richer producer friend, who we later find out is a pedophile. Yeah. And uh, him begging through the glass to Burt Reynolds, but you're my friend, right? But you're my friend. That's right. Burt Reynolds' best scene. It's a great scene. The, the, whole, the movie, if like just those two scenes existed, the movie would have its weight, right? But that's just a couple of them. I think, honestly, one of the most heartbreaking scenes in this movie, or any movie, is Philip Seymour Hoffman oh. sitting in the front seat of a car, yeah. repeating, I'm a fucking idiot. I'm a fucking idiot. I'm a fucking idiot. For like two straight minutes. It is one of the most devastating, oh. most heartbreaking things. And then the movie goes on to the next amazing scene. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I've, I've talked shit, I guess, in quotations about Paul Thomas Anderson in the past. And that, like, he's he sort of found his own identity over the mm-hmm. course of his career. Mm-hmm. And it's a very strong one. Um, I, 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 it sounds dismissive to say that he borrowed the structure from Scorsese. But that's not as easy as it would be just to describe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an amazing tracking sequence in the center of Goodfellas that everyone has continues to talk about and will continue to talk about. In this movie, when the calendar switches from 1979 to 1980, we have a long tracking mm-hmm. shot that goes through this party, and we lose one of our main characters mm-hmm. at the end of it. And it's a shocking moment. Cause... And while I'm watching that scene, mm-hmm. was I thinking about Goodfellas? No. Not at all. The reason that came out is because I've seen Goodfellas a dozen times, and I've seen Boogie Nights a dozen times, and the parallels are just impossible to not notice when you do that. But generally speaking, as a general audience member, I can't imagine anyone, even if you don't like the subject matter, I can't imagine not being completely swept up, just being carried away by the wave of the movie, and just fucking knocked out. There's no weak performances in this movie. And, like, even characters that you would say are dismissible or, like, you know, I've said, you could edit this character out of the movie and it wouldn't lose anything. You could say that about a lot of these characters in a lot of ways. You could edit Don Cheadle out of the movie and it wouldn't necessarily fuck with the flow of the movie. But Don Cheadle is somehow an essential part of this movie. And he's another great example, Louis Guzman. Like, uh, every part of the movie works. At no point is, like, even in the exhausting sort of last half an hour in the Goodfellas it's sort of the coked out helicopter chase uh-huh. sequence in this one this is this prolonged sequence where they go to see this drug dealer or rob this drug dealer and it's one of the most tense scenes in any fucking movie oh it's unbelievable so brilliantly executed so even if you hate the subject matter and even if you thought it was just a copy paste from Goodfellas I can't imagine you not thinking that you got your money's worth out of Boogie Nights this movie made Paul Thomas Anderson, and anybody who watches the movie would be like, yeah, this guy can make a fucking movie. So um, for me, it's just the most bang for the buck you're going to get out of any of these movies, and I don't see any hill to climb over. As much as I love Midnight Cowboy, I do think this many years on, there might be a little bit of a hill to get over to access the movie. That's not there with, with Boogie Nights, at least not yet. I think it's fantastic. 
I'm glad to hear it because for years I've I've wondered if we should do this show after the Magnolia episode. I'm not as big on Magnolia. I know you aren't. Um, And okay, I'll I'll say a couple things first, then I'll 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 tell you what it was like to revisit this movie because it has been some years since I I saw it. It was nice watching it again. It had been a while. Yeah, yeah, and and that's a good. I understand why people kind of give a few years between movies that. They, they really love and sometimes you can give a few years and then you're just like why did I love that so much and that's always my fear when I go to revisit it and I was open to that idea this time first of all I'll address Paul Thomas Anderson my my theory was and it was advice that I was given um, certainly during my university years is um, until you develop your own style you imitate from the people that inspire you. Yeah. And it seems to me that when we look at uh, Heart Eight's its own thing. Um, and I like Heart Eight as, as well, but that was a very independent film that he did with, again, still with a pretty, pretty darn good cast when we look at who was in that now. But Boogie Nights, Scorsese, I would say Magnolia, I've often thought of Robert Altman. Yeah. And Punch Drunk Love, I've thought of, dare I say, David Lynch. Some others have thought of other. Wes Anderson person. You're thinking of Wes Anderson, but they're contemporaries. So I was, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking of somebody that was a little bit more established. But when for I me, saw it's that. like if Paul Thomas Anderson was going to make a Wes Anderson movie, that'd be Punch Drunk Love. That'd be Punch Drunk. Yeah. I think when it, there will be blood, came out. That's when he kind that's of found it. his, and, and since then he's doing his own thing. And even with Licorice Pizza, people were so excited. He's going back to the '70s. But this is some years before the uh, action of Boogie Nights happens. Same sort of world, San Fernando Valley in L.A. Much more wholesome. But uh, <laughs> Yes, it's a much more wholesome film, for sure. I felt like I got... It's so strange with the subject matter and the disturbing scenes and the tension of it all. This movie was like a big, giant, warm hug for me. Nostalgia? I, not just nostalgia, but... I'm watching these other movies that I'm battling a little bit. Yeah. If for me to like looking at this through critical eyes right away, I sat back, I relaxed, and I had a great time with this movie once again. Almost like the first time I saw it. But the first time I saw it, there's nothing that will beat that experience seen in the theater. And I was excited about this one. I, I it had a lot of hype connected to it. Uh, I, I had seen Heart 8, but this was much bigger than Heart 8 was. And we have that kind of sad music that plays at the beginning. And you're just kind of settling in and like, what's happening? Then, boom, we get into this 70s music. And we see Boogie Nights big on the screen. And then we watch, and because I, there's not just one long tracking shot. That opening sequence where we see... Most of the cast of the film, uh, it appears. To be, I don't know if it was one shot or how many, how long it took to do that, but absolutely brilliant with the music, the acting, and I think that's something where in the first thirty seconds of the movie you had me, even if the rest is terrible and the rest is not terrible. Um, it's interesting the people that I, I focus on. I and I, I'm having a tough time with one and two. All right, I actually counted the number of positives yeah. 
I had in my notes about Boogie Nights and positives I had about Midnight Cowboy and the number of negatives I had to try to figure out what the, this is the I, I told you before this was going to be the hardest one, yeah. one two for me for um, me it wasn't as difficult no for you it, it sounds like it's going to be less difficult mm-hmm. but um, it, it was interesting though I, I focused on I think one of the unsung heroes of this movie is actually John C. Riley. And, I mean, he had been in Heart 8, but I... It took me a while before I realized that he was actually a comedic actor as well as a dramatic actor. I think that there's no job that John C. McGinley is not up for, personally. I think like, he could play fucking anything. Like, like he... he and, and as being, like, Dirk Diggler's... John bu- Riley, sorry. Yeah, buddy through this and like their, their first scene together where they're talking about they're comparing their workout routines and all that yeah. and they and how he he's still connected like after Dirk has you know has moved beyond the family and has gone in that big fight with Burt Reynolds um, but he follows him and, on this journey um, uh, also with uh, what's his name there who was in uh, that awful mo- Stephen King movie we watched um Oh, Thomas Jane. Yeah, Thomas Jane, who, the second you see this guy, is like, this guy's bad, bad news. news. Yeah, you know. He just he's he's going to, yeah. But uh, but Dirk is just too drugged up and coked up to realize that this is the wrong path to go down. But John C. Riley is there for all of those scenes. And just one of my favorite moments, I, I had forgotten about the recording studio, which was so early 90s. And that song reminded me, like, everybody's trying to be Van Halen. Or, yeah. And it reminded me that there was a... Uh, a wrestling tag team. It would have been probably the same era or a few years later. They had a theme song which reminded me so much of this this song that for this album that uh, Dirk Diggler is putting out. Some have been like uh, like on the soundtrack to some terrible like Sylvester Stallone action movie or something <laughs> like. And uh, they're so terrible while they're singing. I love that both Marky Mark and uh, John C. Riley have yeah. this little kid energy to them. They do. They're like a couple of 12-year-olds when they first meet, especially. It's almost like, you want to go see my room? You know, <laughs> yeah, like, I know. I know. And that maintains. And we haven't. it's interesting that we haven't really talked about Wahlberg, because he is the main character of this mm-hmm. movie. And he is really good in it. I've talked about him before in the past. I recently talked about him actually with Lee in The Happening. Not his proudest moment. No. <laughs> um, again, I think weirdly like parallel to Midnight Cowboy, he's strangely perfect casting for this yeah. part. Yeah. Because uh, he does have that little kid energy, but he also has this arrogant sort of bully quality to him. I think in his best performances, he kind of taps into that because mm-hmm. it's just whether or not it's who he is, it, it comes out really believably on film. This bully energy uh, when he has his fight with Burt Reynolds, like you say, "I'm ready to shoot now! I'm shooting now! I'm doing it now! It's me, me, me!" me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's and really that's good. the coke. I mean, yeah. that's the coke. That's the, exactly the drug. The drug brain drugs. is happening there, right? Yeah, yeah. All this being exacerbated, but again, I. I don't want to talk shit about Wahlberg. I think he's fine, but I don't think he's the most amazing actor in the world. Mm-hmm, but I could mm-hmm. get, if you watch this movie, you'd think, Jesus, that guy's amazing. I think absolutely the right guy for the part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's interesting because I, I had that thought back in 97 when I saw it. I was like, man, this guy will be up for best actor. Yeah. Right. And looking at it now, this was the one of the few things I put down as a... A weakness and my wording is 
He's very early in his acting career. So I see him acting more than I see the others in the cast acting. He's also surrounded by amazing people. He's surrounded by amazing people. But I still ultimately like his performance. But there's a there's a few moments there where it's it's gone down a few notches from when I when I was first excited about this guy seeing it in '97 because he was just like Marky Mark, like this cheesy you know Boston area rapper or whatever. That's all I kind of saw him as at that time. I didn't know that he had something like this, and and he really is as the central character, and we are seeing this world through his eyes. I also wanted to shout out. Heather Graham, and I think probably... Roller Girl. <laughs> Roller Girl, the first first time I saw it, I think she's the one that, you know, if you're going to be, you know, um, a little bit as far as, like, those who were going to the movie for the wrong reasons, you know, would would get their money's worth in that way. But watching it this time, there's a scene early on in the film where she's in high school and she's taking this exam and she's reading through it and she has no idea what to do and and she's kind of looking around and suddenly she's very scared and insecure um i teach i mean i I teach high school and i still see that expression in teenage girls faces when they're and you know some of the other dramatic stuff around her and her porn star image and all of that stuff is, is one thing but she got that down perfectly. And she, again, late in the film, and I, I remember it being like a, a really shocking scene when they're moving into the 80s. It's no longer the 70s. And they're doing this reality amateur porn stuff. And they're picking up this guy. And this is a follow-up scene to that classroom scene. And it's this, Same guy. this yeah. jerk who was in her high school class and just happened to pick up. Um and the the rage and I, I like she's somebody who I don't think has always been giving great roles since Boogie Nights. Much like at times Wal- Wahlberg has had a little bit more. He's been a producer and he's he's had The Departed and a few other things. But I feel like this is maybe her her best performance. But it's one that could get dismissed because of all of the other all stars that are around. Yeah. Well, and again, nobody. There's no weak performances no. anywhere to be found no. in this in this movie. But we, we we do probably have to talk about the two who got Oscar nominations. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I got so mad at you about Julianne Moore <laughs> with Magnolia, but I think you agree with me on this one. I She's I heartbreaking. I do not understand for the life of me, and I, I go back. Ellie Confidential is a fantastic movie. Why Kim Basinger or Basinger or whatever. Why she won over Julianne Moore. It's amazing. The, like, both the quality of the role and the quality of the performance, it's amazing that that choice was made. <laughs> it, like, it, that, that one's just insane. Yeah. I mean, uh, she's, been, the, she's been great forever. But not that Basinger's bad or anything in LA Confidential. Well, she, she serves the role, and I guess... But, but arguably, that's an aberration in Kim Basinger's career. Uh-huh. Julianne Moore... Is always fucking. Hard. Yeah, I know. I know. Right? Like, you, I don't know. And again, it's not an easy role. There's a no. and a brave role too. I was talking about Molly Parker. There's a oh. scene in this movie which is an extreme close-up on Julian Moore's nipple. <laughs> so yeah. you have to be committed to a bit to yeah. be and trusting your director to be all right. Let's zoom in on my titties. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, I'm not as big a believer 
in the cult of, of Burt Reynolds as a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I get why he was like the right guy for the part and I get why he got praised for it. But mm-hmm. generally speaking, like I think that he had some great luck in the seventies and he did some legitimately amazing movies and deliverance and things like that. And he coasted on that stardom mm-hmm. for a long time for the bulk of his career. Yeah. For the bulk of his yeah. career. I'm not saying that he's a bad actor, but I am saying that he might be an overrated one. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, he didn't know what he had with Boogie Nights. Like he basically had to get bullied into the the movie, and uh, he wouldn't. He didn't want to work with the director again. And he seems like like he was at one point he was like the coolest person in the world, but it sounds like on the Boogie Nights set he was the least cool person in the room. And I believe it. <laughs> now. If I don't know all of that backstory and I just take the performance as is, he does the job. It is the best performance of his career. Oh yeah, okay. What would you say was a better performance in Burt Reynolds' career? Uh, my mind knee jerk goes to Deliverance, but uh, he he was very good in Deliverance. But uh, again, I don't I don't have that attachment to Burt Reynolds. I, I yeah. don't give a shit about Smokey and the Bandit. I don't give a shit about a lot of the stuff yeah. that he's really quote known for. Uh, I keep on thinking that someday I'm going to see Burt Reynolds in a movie and be like, oh, I get it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I think he's fine. But for some reason, for a while, he was this superstar, right? Yeah. And that he long passed that. Yes. And I think this was a chance to have a third act in his career, and he threw it away just because of his own, I don't know what, yeah. arrogance or stupidity or whatever. Maybe he didn't need it. You know, like he's like I, 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 it would have been interesting. He was supposed to be uh, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? Uh, Tarantino had. I, I think that's probably the role that Bruce Stern had. If I'm, okay. I, I'm not completely sure which role he was supposed to have. It would have been like kind of one last shot, but it, he died before that could happen. Um, but when I, th- there's something that bigger than life about him, and when he first arrives in the film. But it's it wasn't the flashy scenes or the fight with Wahlberg or some of those things that, that got me this time. Yeah, it, it's those moments when uh, that reaction he has when he fi- finds out that his longtime producer is a pedophile. Had pictures of kids, you know, and you know it's not the drug stuff. It's not the like really young girls that this guy was was bringing around. But it's when he hears that, you just see something change in him right then and there. And it's just brilliant film acting. And I, I, there was somebody else who wasn't nominated that year that I wanted over Robin Williams and Burt Reynolds to, to win. Um, but it became between those two guys. Right. I think Burt Reynolds is a bigger jerk than Robin Williams. <laughs> and so that's he basically... Um, sealed his fate and that's why he didn't win as angry as he was and he was you know you see his face when Robin Williams wins that he's so uh, but Robin Williams had had to do the polite smile and the clap time and time again yeah. and you might as well give the Oscar to somebody who's going to appreciate it in a, a great role that said objectively for me between the two performances I, w- I would vote for Burt Reynolds and I guess I guess what holds me back, I mean, part of this personal thing, like I've said in the podcast in the past, like, I, I find it easier to access characters that I can relate to or like. Mm-hmm. 
he's the smartest guy in the room most of the time. When we're when he's on screen, he's the smartest guy in the room, mm-hmm. and he's aware of the exploitation that's going on. Everyone yeah. else is having a party. He's making money off yeah. of these people's yeah. back. So he's a harder person to like. And the trajectory of his character, like everybody has a little mini story within the movie, is mm-hmm. he makes he's a smut peddler, mm-hmm. but he wants to tell himself that he's a filmmaker. Yes. And by the end of the movie, he's like, okay, I'm not a filmmaker. I'm a smut peddler, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. And it's not the most inspirational, <laughs> you know, yeah. character art. But, but, but early on, real, you know, early on, he's as excited about his films as Ed Wood is. Yeah, in the you know the Johnny and those performances were kind of, and films were kind of compared at the time that they came out. Yeah, um, in, in that way. And so early on, the excitement he has when he talks about his films, that's infectious. Yeah. Uh, but he sees the world change, which he initially fights, but then he kind of gives in to... Um, I also think there's there's something brilliant, again, going back to Paul Thomas Anderson's direction, of when um, the prodigal son comes home. Yeah. And, you know, we, we see it from, um, from Burt Reynolds' point of view. And they don't have the camera on him, but that action is so powerful. After all of that has happened, he comes up and he hugs. Yeah, I talked about another movie where there was a similar type of embrace, but there was just something something great about it. And then we and get the fact that he did take him back and he didn't have to. Like yeah, that, no, and, it was potent. And so the difference to me about while Goodfellas is about a family, a crime family, this had kind of the the basis of a, almost like a. a a traditional sitcom family structure, but these were all kind of these these people that are outside of the fringes of society and have been rejected by their own families, but they found a family unit where they would support each other. Sure, they would fight, and there would be severe consequences for for what goes on uh, and tragedies, but they come together in the end. And there's something strangely beautiful about that everybody needs a family but these people really Big need time. a family Big and time. as broken as it is they found one yeah and that's sort of the oh shucks mm-hmm. if there is any yeah. to boogie nights yeah i could do a podcast just talking about this movie there's so many other things <laughs> i'd love to talk about but i'm gonna cut it off we'll there for that. myself uh i think i've been pretty clear Sorry, those are six uh, adult. adult films that we uh, have reviewed and now are about to rank. So thank you for sitting through this. This is, a, this is interesting. Who, who do I choose to watch these sexy time movies with? Jason Dubray. That's what I was like. Naturally, naturally. Let's talk titties, Jason. Um, I actually, even though I, I didn't love all of the movies, actually, I, I, I kind of hated one of them, but... 
I, I enjoyed the subject. Mm-hmm. It wasn't so far off the map from my typical episodes, but it, it was kind of... Just hor- uh, horrific things that happen, <laughs> yet they aren't horror movies. But these felt more grown up than a lot of movies. Like I, I've recently been reviewing like Hills of Eyes Two, <laughs> shit like this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lake Placid versus Anaconda. Like these are real movies. <laughs> <laughs> but how did these six adult pictures rank? What was your least favorite and why? Uh, I'm just gonna shock you. I spit on your grave. We're still friends. Great. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I just. <laughs> Yeah, we've said too much. We've given it too much of your time. Um, number five for me, and this is where we differ, the center of the universe. I just didn't have a good time with it. I, mean, I, I wish I had. And I, I, I felt like maybe there, with this director and the two leads, there was a potential for a better film. Um, and listening to you talk about the ideas, I want to see that film. Right. I just didn't, didn't feel like I saw that film just watching it in my place, I guess. Maybe... Right. Maybe it would be different. Maybe, Maybe yeah. I need to revisit it in a few years. I don't know. Maybe all of the blood had rushed away from my brain for some reason. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah, anyway. Uh... <laughs> Molly Parker, huh? <laughs> it's a Canadian idea. It's a Canadian content thing. It's, 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 it's... <laughs> There's a lot of Canadian content in that movie. That's right. Okay. I'm patriotic, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> number four <All> right. <laughs> number four moving on uh consenting at adults I, I i like it more than you do but it it dipped down from where i thought it actually was going to be when i looked at this list of films there so uh, i'll defend a few things in it but yeah the second half is a mess yeah i i they, they, they needed a screenwriter to go along with the great director and the great cast it happens so often, right? They have like yeah. everything but a script. It's so and I don't frustrating. Know, the studio bought up this idea in the script and then they hired everybody and said, oh no, you have to do this if you want to do uh, your next project or whatever. Or we'll pay you a ridiculous amount of money to do this one. You know, I'm sure they, everybody did quite well. I'm yeah, sure, yeah, I'm sure they did. You know, And it helped Spacey's yeah. profile, I guess, that 92 was when he started to become known a little bit more. So, um, For good or ill. My number three, surprisingly, was the girlfriend experience. I, you know, I see the problems with it, but it, it was a relief to me in some ways. And maybe there's something to the order that you watch these movies in. And that might be it where I, I thought, okay, well, this is, this is not going to be great, you know. Um, but I found more things that I thought were interesting in that than I did with the center of the universe, which are kind of the it's two center of the per- world. Er, center of the world. Did I call it center of the universe? Sorry. Yeah, yeah center a of the world. Times you said yeah, but maybe for me it's the universe. For you it's the world. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sorry. Thank you for correcting me on that. Oh my gosh. Um, this is what happens on a Monday night if you record. There's something. another movie called Across the Universe too. Sometimes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, and that's a very different movie. Very, different very, very, very different film. Uh, okay. And then this was the toughest decision, the one two in, in of any show I've done with you. I am going to go number two, Midnight Cowboy, uh, and number one, Boogie Nights. But it's very close because we were talking about Boogie Nights wasn't my choice for the best movie in nineteen ninety seven, but definitely Midnight Cowboy would have been for that year. But how it, for whatever reason, makes me feel, and the fact that I'm reviewing it 
and I can sit back and relax and know I'm in good hands for two and a half hours, which yeah. feels, as you said, like an hour 15. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that, that's my list there, even though I'm, again, I didn't even care to get that one movie's title right. So we agree on the top and bottom. And in a lot of ways, that's the important, the ones that were sort of, that happens unquote, a lot. I think, important to me. Yeah. Uh, again, and if you put Midnight Cowboy at number one, I wasn't going to like flip the table. <laughs> How dare you, sir? He's but, beating me. He's beating me. <laughs> um, yeah, I spit on your grave. I I spent, I think it was $8 on a double edition that had the original I Spit on Your Grave mm-hmm. with this remake on it. And again, I'd read a book that sort of primed me that I needed to reevaluate it. I reevaluated the original. I have now reviewed the remake and I hate both of them. And mm-hmm. I don't like using the word hate I know you to don't. movies. It's like it seems like kind of too big an emotion to waste on a movie. Mm-hmm. But I just I don't I do not get it's it. It's too bad it isn't the summer where we could like burn this or something. Yeah. yeah. Well again, like I, I can't imagine a scenario where I feel like maybe I need to watch it again or like, hey, hon, if you like watching I Spit on the Grave or my boys are in the mood to watch a movie, you want to watch something really, sc- you know, like, again, uh, not only do I not like it, but I question kind of the psychology of who this movie was made for, if not the people who made it themselves. This is unkind, but I am putting Consenting Adult in fifth place mm-hmm. because of how absolutely baseline bland it is to me like i the the cast does do everything they can to elevate it but at the end of the day it's just it's it's sunk mm-hmm. by the script it's just not interesting enough yeah. um the next two movies uh i think rank higher because of their interest level mm-hmm. more than the craft of the filmmaking or the performances to okay. a certain degree fair enough but i just i i Whereas I felt rage watching I Spit on Your Grave, I kind of felt nothing while I watched Consenting Adults. It's almost worse, isn't it? <laughs> it's just like, well, especially because it's full of actors that I really like. Yeah. You know, it just... So that might... If, if I've made an unkind placement, <laughs> that I think is it. In fourth place is where I put the girlfriend experience. And we talk about how we bring our own baggage to each movie. My baggage I brought to this movie was that, A, I really, really, really like Soderbergh. And B, I guess I did come in shields up, knowing that this was a porn star mm-hmm. starring in the movie. Soderbergh actually, right around this time, worked with uh, that MMA fighter for Haywire. Uh, oh, yeah. She's yeah. in this, the new Star Wars TV shows now. And at the time, she was an untested actress, too. But he just liked her and wanted to make a movie around her. And I think did so much more successfully there yeah. than he did here. There's too much extraneous to the theme, I think. But I also am not sure that I fully understand what the theme is, which is another problem. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, in fourth place, I put The Girlfriend Experience, but I will say that even though it's one of my least favorite Soderbergh movies, watch Soderbergh stuff. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> always, it's always interesting. Yeah. Uh, third place, I do think it's interesting, and I do think it's going into sim- exploring similar stuff that The Girlfriend Experience is attempting to. I think it's a little bit more successful, but I will concede that I have very strongly mixed feelings about the ending of the movie. I really feel like if they'd stuck the landing on this one, that it might have actually been something quite special. As it is, as it sits right now, it's interesting from the director, because like I say, he's never made the same movie Mm -hmm. twice, 
and at the risk of, you know, beating this to death, Molly Parker is just an incredible actress. Do stuff with Molly Parker. Doesn't have to be sexual, doesn't have to be whatever, but I like she's just capable to any task that you give her and this is just another example of that. So yeah. give give her some more work. And I guess we're back into agreement now. Second place, Midnight Cowboy. And mm-hmm. again, I did start by saying, I guess in theory, negative things, but any movie that's, you know, four or five decades old, yeah. we're going to start seeing some things. And mm-hmm. I just think there's the way movies were paced generally, but especially the experimental art nouveau cinema of the 60s, yeah. it requires a patient viewer and not necessarily for forgiving eyes, but you just, you have to meet the movie halfway. And uh, it seems, unless it's just my old fartness coming through, that people seem less and less willing to do that these days. I agree. Yeah, people aren't. Whereas Boogie Nights is just going to sweep you up and take you on this ride, whether you're in for it or not. It's it's one of those movies where, you know, if people still channel surfed, where you, you bump into Boogie Nights and you just get sucked into the movie. And you can walk in at almost any point, especially after you've already seen it, because of the kaleidoscopic nature of all the characters. And, and I do think in this case he balanced and covered the characters in a more equal way uh, and more cinematically, a better cinematic payoff to me than he provided with Magnolia. Um, and again, I've often wondered if he'd taken two years instead of one year to make Magnolia, if it might have made the difference. But number one with the bullet for me mm-hmm. was Boogie Nights. And I kind of knew that when the, the list was made. Uh, I suspected that would be the case with you until we had that conversation on the phone. And I was like, oh, well, maybe he's going to be mad at me. I thought I thought Boogie Nights number one because you were saying you were wrestling with it. For yeah. me, this was the list that had Boogie Nights and, and everything five else, other movies. Yeah, so, yeah. to me, it, it, it was Midnight Cowboy, Boogie Nights, and four other movies. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to mention we you you touched on it, but again. The, the late great Philip Seymour Hoffman oh, um, Scotty. De- devastating and I th- there's a moment which again just knowing what we know the first time we see Scotty walk in he's going past that girl who's Odine yeah and I just my mind went to yeah. how he died tragically but I'm happy to see that that the next generation with Cooper Hoffman Starring in Licorice Pizza, that was such a cool choice that Paul Thomas Anderson made, and that it paid off because yeah. it would have really sucked if he cast Kaufman's kid and he wasn't up for mm-hmm. the task. But I think he was. This is two movies in twenty twenty one where we saw in featured roles the the kids of famous actors who died too soon. The other one being um, uh, the the Sopranos movie there, okay. uh, the the many saints of uh, Newark, where James Gandolfini's son played a young Tony Soprano. I haven't seen it. And you know, just just knowing what what happened there with, uh, in the case of Gandolfini's son discovered his body. Oh man! And just kind of seeing that these guys are 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 working in the industry. And they look like they're all right. Because for years, I'm just like, what happened to that kid? And what is, like, the kids... Uh, you used to see Philip Seymour Hoffman's kids when they were little on his knee at award shows. And now, what, what happens to weird them? thing in Hollywood because, like, I don't think that you should just get a career because your parents were famous. Yeah. Emilio Estevez. But, <laughs> uh, 
that because your parents are famous doesn't mean that you're not qualified to be you know successful yeah you know yeah and it worked out here but i just i wanted to even though it's a downer note i guess with with this show just remember how great he was and and some of his best work was in paul thomas anderson films yeah and i think we agreed how great he was in magnolia i think that was one of the highlights i think he was my favorite performance in magnolia because and it was so different from scotty and so, so totally different yeah well, thank you so much for reviewing these adult cinema films. I know we didn't agree, but but we're still friendly. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll always be happy to come on your show. Everybody, uh, you know, there's these two-week gaps between rank and review episodes, which is irritating, I admit. But uh, fill your ears with the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, because it's of high quality. And occasionally, your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons even shows up. Yeah, I'll be excited to have you back on soon. <laughs> Thanks for doing it, bro. So there it was, six adult films reviewed and then ranked by Larry Parsons and Jason Dubray. But I bet you you might have your own opinions about this. What did we get right? What did we get wrong? I must know. Please write me at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Check out my website at rankandreview.ca because I'm up here in Canada where all the cool stuff happens. And, uh... Thank you so much for your ears. I hope you continue listening to Rank and Review.